Now is the time to cross over from ashes to beauty. We have been forged in the fire of adversity. Called to return to our first love. Follow the ancient paths as we discover the hidden word of Yahuwah. This is Crossing Over with Jessica Arianes. Live and direct from Los Angeles, California, coming in with Dr. Pigeon on my side. And as always, it is a joy to meet with you this Thursday evening here on Crossing Over. Dr. Pigeon, as always, good evening. Let me bring you on the screen. Shalom, shalom, shalom. How are you? Uh, I muted yeah. your mic. Say it again. There we go. Uh, yeah, I'm doing very well, Jessica. Thank you. Thank you for hosting tonight. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate your work here this week. I know uh, you're not uh, up, you know, 190% today. <laughs> but that's not going to stop you from doing a, a usual great you job. You didn't stop me. <laughs> Let me just say something. So we got a message earlier. We get a, we get a couple of early birds here on the show and they wait. They anticipate uh, the show. They love to hear what you have to say, Dr. Pigeon, and so do I. Uh, so we have Angelo who asked how we were doing. He just had this sense that there was some sort of urgency and that uh, perhaps there was uh, some spiritual warfare and that we needed prayer. And just uh, for those of you who may not know, Dr. Pigeon has been under the weather these last four days, and I have also been uh, not too well. And today it hit me pretty hard. I had to take some ibuprofen, but um, yeah, I wasn't doing so well. So I called up, I even messaged uh, Dr. Pigeon said, Hey, I think I need to cancel. He's like, no way I'm going. Can you just set me up? And I was like, okay, I got you, Dr. P. The show was gone. So it's, it's a good thing because I, I will tell you, I was wrestling, Dr. P. I was wrestling like even if my body says no, this is grace not sufficient. So I know there's a time to rest, but I'm not that bad that I can't, you know, articulate his words. So thank you. Thank you for encouraging me to keep going. All right. I, Hallelujah. I really love doing this show with you. All right. So tonight we're going to talk about something very interesting. Um, I like the way that you coined the term, the stones will cry out. And this is a revelation regarding uh, Yahushua HaMashiach. And you're going to display the beauty, the intricate design of the 12 stones, correct? Yes, and I have to tell you, Jessica, you know, I think this was kind of requested by some people, uh, some listeners a couple of weeks back. They said, do something on the stones. And so I spent, I really have spent a long time on this particular presentation, uh, as in several days. And uh, Shalom, Laura, good to see you. And so uh, there's Angelo. Thank you, Angelo. Shalom. And so here we are with uh, the stones will cry out. And I have to tell you that uh, Amber's there. Hi, Amber. And uh Oh, Brian and Nikki. Okay. Hey, great. Glad to see you here. Yeah. We're just All going right. through the shalom's. Go ahead, Dr. P. Sorry. All right. Okay. So anyway, the but you know, there was a request, do something on the stones. Now I have to tell you, and I'll say hello back to Hillary. You know, when you talk about this, when you talk about this, uh um okay, somebody better say okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to wait on some of these shaloms or I won't be able to get this. Just stone. you can do it at the end, Dr. P. Don't worry, they just come up. They just come All right, up. glad so, to see worry. everybody. Okay, okay. All right. So ahead. anyway. The thing is, is I've, I've worked really a long time on this particular presentation, Jessica. I think I have maybe uh, 30 hours in this, something like this. And uh, as we talk about this presentation, 
you know, we're going to we're going to go into this uh, into detail. But I have to tell you, I come I came across a couple things that I think are going to be really surprising. I mean, I talked over some of the stuff that's in this presentation uh, with Brad here earlier in the week, and he was absolutely shocked. Mm -hmm. And I think we're going to be challenging some things. What people believe uh, the scripture says, we're going to find that there is something different. And we're also going to see that this conception about the stones, and, we'll and we're going to be talking about the Urim and the Tumim as well as we get farther into this. Um, but we, you know, but primarily we're talking about the 12 stones of the Ephod. And, um, and so we talk about, or the breastplate, when we talk about this breastplate, we're going to see that this has a particular instruction and particular application. We all think we know what those stones are. But by the end of the show, we're going to find out that we don't. <laughs> you, know, you, you know how it is, Jessica? You think you know, then you start looking, you go, no, wait a minute. Well, uh, mm, uh, yeah, I thought I knew, but maybe not. But anyway, so I think, uh, yeah, this is, I think this is going to be a surprising show, uh, a revealing show about particular scriptures, and we're going to get some understanding, and I think we're going to get a new understanding that is going to be flat shocking. When do we get to it? Flat shocking. <laughs> flat, flat, flat shocking. shocking. All right. Flat shocking. You know, yeah. I'm all about the prophetic, Dr. P. Uh, you know, I think that uh, one of the gifts of the Ruach is uh, the gift of, of, well, it's not gift of prophecy, but it's a prophetic unction. It's the spirit of discernment. But he gives us this ability or the spirit of knowledge. Um, so when I do search the scriptures, I do so by the unction of the Ruach. And so usually I'm, I'm tuned into that which is prophetic or is revealing, like you said, it's a little beneath the surface layer. So that's what I'm looking forward to tonight. Again, you guys are turned, tuned in to Crossing Over tonight's show. The rocks will cry out. The stones will cry out. Dr. Pigeon, let me share the screen here and you can take it away. But before we do, if you don't mind, while I get this situated, if you don't mind praying for us. I don't mind at all. And Thank before you. I pray, Jessica, just yes. I want to I want to encourage everybody if they can. Uh, you know, we've got a whole bunch of things going on at Sefer Publishing Group now. Uh, we are going to be launching Sefer Academy on Patreon. Sefer Radio is also coming. That's going to be really cool. And that's going to be a more contemporary uh, a radio program. It's going to be called The Word on the Street. And it's going to be me discussing, you know, the word and how it approach and how it's, you know, being dealt with in the world today. I know a lot of people have contemporary things on their mind, and particularly, you know, how the end times events are unfolding. So I'm going to be discussing this on what will be called Sefer Radio. We're also launching podcasts and a number of other things are coming. So we, we want to be able to extend... Uh, our outreach as many ways as we possibly can so people can hear us in, in all kinds of different venues. And yes, at some point, we will actually get the scriptures recorded in audio format. All right. With that being said, don't forget, to come, <laughs> don't forget to come to Suffered.net and visit my blog where, you know, if you come in to visit the blog, you'll find that uh, a lot of the stuff we talk about here, I record in a blog so you can have a, a kind of written, it's not a transcript, but it's a record of where our, what the ideas are. And also we have, uh, you know, we've got lots of downloads. People have questions about the calendars or they have a question about the book of Jasher or they have a question about this, that, or the other thing. We have downloads available, free downloads available on the website. You can just go there and download it. You can also check out our Spanish blog and our, and our Spanish tabs now because the Spanish stuff is coming. It won't be here until the end of the year. For those of you who have been waiting for 3ER2, now's the time. Go ahead and order, specify in your order 3ER2 
and you will get three ER2. And I, I got to tell you, it's a spectacular. It's specta It's just, it's spectacular. I mean, you know, every time we do a little bit of an upgrade in the work, we think that's it. This is the finest. This is the best. It will never be modified from here. And I'll tell you, you know, the Ruach just keeps revealing. Like the show tonight is going to be revealing. So with that being said, let's pray, Jessica. What do you say? Yes, sir. And if I may also, really quick, si se puede, first of all. Second of all, if you do choose to purchase anything from the Sefer store, please consider using my link. It is located under Dr. Pigeon's description name, where in the description box under his name, uh, you could just click that link. It'll take you right to his website. And, you know, I, I it helps uh, my ministry here. It helps what we're doing, which is uh, very local to the women here in our community. And for those of you who don't know, I am a not only a certified, but I have a degree in Christian counseling as well as psychology. And so I help a lot of women here in the community uh, heal from various issues, traumas, uh, you know, drug disorders, all sorts of stuff. So that's what I do here. And I don't receive any type of funding. So that little bit helps. It helps me uh, continue doing what I'm doing. And I actually do it with great joy. So Dr. Pigeon, I'm excited for what's taking place there at Sefer Publishing Group. And yes, I am ready to pray. All right. Thank you, Jessica. Okay. Such a great joy to have you on board with, uh, with you helping us through Sefer Group. Okay, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, you know, we, we come here today, uh, uh, Abba, we come here today and we come with great expectation knowing that uh, you are mighty to save. And I know this week I have been contacted by so many people who are uh, suffering the challenges of temptation, suffering the challenges of self-condemnation, suffering the, the challenges of sickness and illness, suffering the challenges of loss of employment, and loss of confidence, lots of faith, loss of all kinds of things. And as life moves into these kinds of struggles, you know, we have to keep in mind that we have someone that hears our every cry and our every plea. We know, Father, that you are with us. We know that you have an ear that hears. We know that you carry every tear in your hand and, for, and that you are good and your mercy endures forever. And we give thanks, hallelujah, hallelujah, yahweh, sivahot. Father, we also come to you in prayer now. We bring our petitions to you for each of the brothers and sisters here. I want to lift up all of those brothers and sisters to you, Father, that are suffering in this life, those who have, that are suffering from chronic illnesses, yeah. whether it be uh, back pain or whether it be uh, uh, inordinances caused from auto accidents or whether it be other problems that have evolved from uh, the use of um, pharmaceutical products or whatever the situation may be. Uh, that you would bring uh, a healing and comfort and joy and a miraculous healing, and that you would bring them to a a place of uh, a place of comfort and a place where the pain is eased and gone, and and put them on a path towards healing. Father, we just pray for all those people doing now that you would bring them on a path towards healing, Father, and that they would know even today that you have set them on this path. For those people who are struggling in their in their relationships in their marital relationships. Now, I pray, Father, that for those that are struggling in their marital relationships, that they would be patient and kind and loving and gentle and understanding and long-suffering, and that they would open their ears to hear their spouse, what their spouse is saying, and to take the time to know the deep concerns of their heart, and that you would bring the husband back to the wife and the wife back to the husband and unite them 
and an understanding of peace and joy that their marriages might be sustained. And especially in, in the relationships where there are children involved, that those relationships that both parents would look and say that there is a responsibility to the children and that the love they have for each other and that the love they have for their children would bind them together with the love they have for you. Bless them now. Bless them now, Father, with your grace and your mercy and your kindness. Fill them with your Ruach HaKodesh. They may know you and know you truly. Father, we pray for this world. We know that this world is coming to a climax now, Father, and that we have people who do not have reverent hearts who are leading this world into this area. And there are so many, Father, that hate your children on this earth. They just hate us, and they come at us with all kinds of swords and weapons and stones, and whether it's a, a, some kind of a technology block or it's somebody condemning us or whatever the situation may be. Father, we pray that, first of all, all of your warriors, that you would render us invisible in their sight, that they would not have eyes to see us or ears to hear us or a mind to know us, and that they would concern themselves with the works of their own flesh and not uh, concern themselves with what is happening in the spiritual war forever for those demons who are circling about us who are intent upon inflicting their damage, we rebuke them now in the name of Yahushua HaMashiach, and that you would cast them into the outer darkness, Father. Even now, cast the demons who inhabit the lives of your children into the outer darkness and free us from their temptation, their accusations, their lies, and their murders. Father, we pray now also for those who are yoked and who are yoked to a system to which they do not wish to be yoked, we pray that you will encourage them to cut the tether, Father, that if they can cut the tether, cut the tether, Father. Let them give them the strength and the courage to cut the tether and to walk away from those people who would hold them to doctrine that is not appropriate in their life, that they are convicted is not appropriate in their life. Help them to cut that tether, Father. Help them to cut that tether. Be with us now in the day of, of our uh, discussion here, Father, as we talk about this, these miracles that appear in your word. Of course, every word being miraculous in and of itself. But, Father, be with us now as we expose these words. And may you guide us and teach us and also, Father, correct us. And if there are errors in this discussion and things where we don't know what we're talking about, let these things come forward. And let the brothers and sisters be strong enough to raise any objection that they feel is necessary to whatever they feel is incorrect. We pray for the people who are listening to this show now, Father, bless them. Those who are doing ministries, Father, bless them. Bring joy and peace and the provision they need. And we thank you so much for this opportunity to speak even tonight, Father. Be with us now in spirit and truth in the name of Yahushua HaMashiach, our beloved. Amen. Amen. All right. I'll go ahead and thank you for that. That was a beautiful, precious prayer, Dr. P. I appreciate it. I'm going to go ahead and share the screen now. Give me just a moment while I do that. And here we go. All right. Here we go. The stones will cry out. The 12 precious stones and the message of Mashiach. All right. Let's get started here on slide two. Okay. Here we go. And uh, well, all right. And you shall make the breastplate of judgment with cunning work. After the work of the ephod, you shall make it of gold, of blue, and of purple, and of scarlet, 
and a fine twined linen shall you make it. Four square it shall be, being doubled. A span shall be the length thereof, and a span shall be the breadth thereof. And you shall set in it settings of stones, even four rows of stones. The first row shall be a sardius, a topaz, and a carbuncle. This shall be the first row. And the second row shall be an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row, a ligure, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, and an onyx, and a jasper. And they shall be set in gold in their enclosings. And the stones shall be with the names of the children of Yasharel, twelve, according to their names, like the engravings of a signet, everyone with his name, shall they be according to the twelve tribes. Now we can see that there's, you know, if you look at these stones here, you'll see that they have some of the names set out in here. You know, here's, you know, the right-hand corner is Reuben and then Shimon and then Levi. And these stones are set out, of course, in the order of birth, in the order of birth. Okay, next slide. However, when we say, oh, it's sardius or it's jasper or it's carbuncle or it's diamond or whatever, we have these words in here that are Hebrew. And the Hebrew words that appear are odem, pitta, barakat, nofek, safir, yachalom, leshem, shebu or shebu, achlama, tarshish, shohem, and yashve. Okay, now. Well, I was looking at these words, I thought, okay, well, do we have any indication of what kind of stones they are? Well, not really. Uh, in fact, when I looked at it a little bit closer, I began to discover what they're really talking about is the condition of the stone, not what kind of stone it is. So, Odem, you know, they say it's Odem, but that's Aleph, Dalet, Mem, Safit. You know, you might recognize that as Adam, or Edom, or Adom, which is the color red, right? So Odom, red. Okay. Pitta, budding. Like the stone is going to be like a budding flower, if you will, a, like an emerging bud that comes out of the top of the seed, a, a budding flower. Okay. Barakat. Now, barakat is an interesting word. It comes from bara, the same word that we use for baruch or, or barach, which is blessing, right? Barak. But barach itself comes from the word bara, which means creator or to create, right? Creator, bara, bara, ku, barak, barach, literally your creator, barak. Bless you, barak, your creator, your creator on you, right? That's what barak means or baruch. It's, but it comes from this root barak. And in this case, it means flashing, okay? Nofek means glistening, glistening. And then sapir, now sapir is a very interesting word. You know, I, I, I can't spend too long on this slide, but sapir is spelled samik fe yod resh. And it comes from the root samik pe resh, which is safir or sefer, sefer or safir. Now, there's, it's very interesting because I think there's six words that are spelled samik pe resh. And it doesn't just mean book. A lot of people think sefer, that means book. Well, in the Aramaic, it means book. But in the Hebrew, it actually means something more than that. It means a numbered writing. And in fact, a sapphire 
And, and of course, you know, the Masoretes tell us, well, the pronunciation of this Samic Pei Yodresh is Sapir or Sapir, but it really isn't. There's no two P's. The Pei is either P or P-H, P, Sapphire, 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 okay, Sapphire. Now, when you're talking about the Sapphire, you're talking about something that is engraved and something that is enumerated or a counter. It's a counting stone, okay? Counting or counter. Okay, Yahalom, hammered, pressed down, pressed down, right? Uh, Leshem, we know that Leshem, Shem being name, Leshem means the namer, the stone names, the stone names. Shebu, the stone gives off seven rays. Well, we know that if the stone gives off seven rays, it's probably cut, uh, you know, with a, the way a diamond would be cut to give off a seven-sided face, right? A seven-sided face. And so it gives off seven rays of light. Achlama means to be in covenant. Yeah, you know, it means kind of the dream stone, but the dream stone represents being in covenant, in covenant, okay? Tarshish, gold or silver, because that's where it comes from, the gold of Tarshish. Shoham, whitened, and finally, Yashve, polished, okay? Now we'll see. Let's go to this next slide, Jessica, and we're going to start to see how this plays out. All right. Let's take a look at what, what we find here in Yekezkel, Ezekiel 28, 11, 14. Now, we're going to deal with this passage, and this is where I think, I think we're going to see some shocking things here, okay? Okay, moreover, the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Son of Adam, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tzor, or Tyrus, depending on what your translation says, and say unto him, Thus says Adonai Yahweh, You seal up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You have been in Eden, the garden of Elohim. Every precious stone was your covering. Now look at these stones, the sardius, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl and the onks and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle. Those sound kind of familiar. And gold, the workmanship of your tablets and of your pipes was prepared in you the day that you were created. You are the anointed cherub that covers, and I have set you so. You were upon the holy mountain of Elohim. You have walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. You have, Now, that's important. You have walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. We will see that when we get to the Urim and the Tumim, the stones of fire are these stones, okay? Now, Let's look at this first passage. Moreover, the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Son of Adam, take up a lamentation upon the king of Sor, and say unto him, Thus says Adonai Yahweh, you seal up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Okay, king of Sor, here, you can see here in the Hebrew, Al-Melech Sor, okay? Al-Melech Sor, right? Okay, now we see, now I've, you know, I don't believe in the Nikud. I think the Nikud is a distortion. So we, we, we're going to take these and consider them without the Nukud. So Melech, which is the word that's given to you in the Strongs, is H4428, spelled Mem, Lamed, Kof, Safit, Kof, Safit. Mem, Lamed, Kof, Safit, right? Okay, 4428. But 4432 is spelled Mem, Lamed, Kof, Safit, okay? It's identical spelling, but 4432 is Molech. Not Malak or Melech, 
But Molech, Molech. Okay, now how about Tyrus, which we're given in this passage, or Tzor? You know, Tyre, right? King of Tyre. And here that's H6865, and it's spelled very simple, Tzadi Resh. Tzadi Resh. However, if we bounce from 6865 to 6862, we see that it's, oh, hey, Tsar, and it means the adversary. It means the adversary. Okay, let's go to the next slide. When we bounce up here to this next slide, you're going to see that when we're talking about, hold on here just a second. Just, there we go. Uh, when we talk about this, we're going to we're going to we're going to come back and we're going to replace this. But you know, a lot of people have had questions about this. They say, "Well, this passage is about Lucifer, or Satan, or the devil, or whoever you know, the serpent, whoever it may be, the anointed cherub." And I've had I've heard I, I don't know many many sermons. This is one of the you know cherry picked passages out of Ezekiel that that uh, pastors like to preach on to say, "Well, this is a, a greater identification for Lucifer, who is covered with stones." Now, the thing is, is that the king of Tyre, no, guess who he is? Molech the adversary. He's Molech the adversary. Now, let's read this again. Moreover, the word of Yahweh came unto me saying, Ben Adam, cry out, Shah. That's the word Shah. A lamentation, Kina. Kina is the word that's found there. Upon Molech the adversary, right? Al Molech Tsar, right? Cry out a lamentation upon Molech, the adversary, and say unto him, Thus says Yahweh, you seal up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Okay, boom. Now we have something different going on. We're not talking about the king of Tyre. We're talking about Molech. We're talking about Molech, right? Now, if you go and you look up Molech, they'll tell you, well, that was a god of the Canaanites, a deity of the Canaanites. But we know that repeatedly in Scripture, we have sacrificing children to Molech, passing children through to Molech, passing children through the fire to Molech. But it is all of this discussion about putting things to Molech, right? All right, verse 13, you have been in Eden, the garden of Elohim. Every precious stone was your, not your clothing, but your garniture. In other words, you're not closed with these, but you have, you're garnered with these, right? Similar to this breastplate that you see that the priest would wear, this breastplate, you're garnered with that breastplate. You see, you're not clothed with it. You're garnered with it. Okay, and the better word there is garniture. The sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle, gold. The workmanship of your tabrets. Okay, so tabrets here, we have this We have this word tofik, right? Tofik, tabrets, and your pipes, which is neketh, right? Which was prepared for you in the day that you were created. All right, so first of all, the gold is zahav. Zahav. And so we see here in the Zahav, we, we see this idea of the Zion He Beit. Zion He Beit. Okay. But that's assuming the Beit is, in fact, the uh, the the actual last letter. If that last letter was Mem Safit, and you can see how close they are, it's just one small closure in the Beit. If it was a hem, then it doesn't mean gold at all. It means rancid loathing. Rancid loathing. Okay. The tofik, here you see the tofik, which is, you know, the stav, pe, yod, uh, kaf, safit, but it's tofik, or so they said. However, how do we know that it's not tepuach, tepuach, which of course means apple 
or fruit of the tree, tupuach, tupuach, right? So it's, it's the workmanship of your tabrets. Well, what does that mean? Oh, well, they, you know, that's your tambourine. It's the workmanship of your tambourine and then your pipes, you know, which is kind of like your flute or something. And I've heard pastors say, well, he was, you know, he had a, he had a, a pipe, a flute built into him, to his body, and he had a tambourine built into his body. Okay, I mean, that's an approach, sure. I mean, the truth is, if you've ever studied voice, you know that your voice is, uh, in fact, your body. I mean, you have, you know, the idea of these, this uh, kind of, uh, you know, bagpipes bag, which is your, you know, which is controlled by your diaphragm as you inhale at the bottom of this. And then you have this windpipe, which is, in fact, a pipe. And then you have this reed, which is called the vocal cord. Well, it's not a reed, but you have this kind of sounding device, which are the vocal cords and the reed, which is the nose and all of these things. And, and then the facial mask, all of these things are part of the instrument that is in the human body. And it could be construed as pipes. You know, you've heard people say, oh, man, that singer's got great pipes, right? That's what they're kind of referring to. But in this case, I'm not sure it's pipes at all, that it may in fact be fruit. And then finally, we get this idea of the pipes, Nekev, Okay, well, maybe it's Nekev, but if you look at Nekev, how's it spelled? Nun, Kof, uh, uh, Bey. Nun, Kof, Bey, right? Nekev. Nun, Kof, Kof, Bey. However, that's exactly the same word as Nakav, Nun, Kof, Bey. Kof, Bey. What are we talking about here? Blasphemy. You see, it's exactly the same spelling as blasphemy. And your pipes were prepared in you? How about your blasphemy was prepared in you in the day that you were created? You molek the adversary, your rancid loathing, your fruit, your poisonous fruit, and your blasphemy were prepared in you the day you were created. Okay, let's go to the next slide. So Zaham, you see Zaham. This is H2092, primitive root, to be rancid, i.e. To, to loathe or to abhor. So, you know, they have this spirit of loathing, the spirit of loathing that is born into Molech, the adversary. Tupuak, an apple. I mean, you know, modern Hebrew, Tupuak is apple, uh, the fruit of the tree. And, of course, we know that this is the fruit, you know, that was oftentimes referred to as having been eaten in the Garden of Eden from the, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a poisonous fruit, if you will a fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And then finally, Nakav. Now see, Nakav, age 53-44, it's a primitive root, the root of what they try to tell you is Nakub or whatever it is they pronounced it, however the Masoretes wanted to construe it to say that means pipes. Well, its primitive root means to puncture, to perforate, to or to, you know, to designate, to libel, to appoint, to blaspheme, you see, to bore, to curse, to express, withholds, name, to pierce, to strike, through. And I did a big long discussion on this, of course, when we talked about the sacred name. And when we talked about the sacred name and what was blasphemy, and of course, the striking through of the name is blasphemy, the striking through of the name. And of course, when they bore into uh, with holes, Mashiach, who was the word made flesh, they struck through, they bored, they cursed, they punctured, right? They pierced, they pierced. And when they did that, that was the act of killing the Mashiach was, in fact, an act of blasphemy. Okay, next. So here we go. All right, now let's take a look and see what these things look like. So here, these 12 stones that appear on this Molech the adversary, again, we have a red budding, flashing, glistening counter 
which is hammered or pressed down, named, giving off seven rays of the covenant, but is loathed and uh, with poisonous fruit and blasphemy. Interesting that we have this, you know, it's close to what you would might call the tree of life, but not the tree of life. This is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because it contains loathing, poisonous fruit, and blasphemy. Okay, next slide. Okay, so let's continue on and let's see how this pat how this verse looks now. You have been in Eden, the garden of Elohim. Every precious stone was your garniture, the sardius, topaz, and the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, and the emerald, and the carbuncle, and rancid loathing. The ministry of your fruit and of your blasphemy was prepared in you in the day that you were created. The ministry of your fruit and of your blasphemy was prepared in you the day that you were created. Mm, interesting. Difficult subject for some. But this is Ezekiel's writing. Okay, let's go to the next one. Okay, moreover, let's see what this looks like now. Moreover, the word of Yahweh came into me saying, Son of Adam, take up a lamentation or cry out a lamentation upon Molech the adversary and say unto him, Thus says Adonai Yahweh, you seal up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You have been in Eden, the garden of Elohim. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, the topaz, and the diamond, and the barrel, and the onyx, and the jasper, and the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle. And rancid loathing, the ministry of your fruit and of your blasphemy, was prepared in you the day that you were created. You are the anointed cherub that covers, and I have set you so. You were upon the holy mountain of Elohim, and you have walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Now, when he, say, when he says that this cherub has walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire, this is going to be a very interesting situation because when we get to the Urim and the Tumim, we're going to see that light walks up and down in the midst of the stones of the fire, right? So I don't know if if Yekezkel is saying what he also said in 2020, in Ezekiel 2020, where we get this kind of teaching that says, yeah, guess what? There are things in here that uh, there has been you know, at one point, Ezekiel says that many of the laws Moshe gave the house of Yasharel were evil. They were evil laws. And this is part of the reason why Ezekiel was contemplated as being excluded from the Tanakh entirely. They were talking about excluding it. Instead, what they did, a fellow named Hananiah, what was his last name? Anyway, Hananiah, uh, in the first century, he spent, I forget how long it was, months, harmonizing, harmonizing Yekezkel, Ezekiel, harmonizing it uh, to make it fit with the Torah. In other words, he went into Ezekiel into the original script and changed it. Not only did he change the order, and if you look at Ezekiel, you'll see it's out of order. There are 13 scrolls in Ezekiel, and they're all out of order. When If you look at that, you see that, okay, he changed the order, and he also changed the text. He changed the text to make the check, the text harmonize. So we know by the admissions of the people who are responsible for maintaining the text that Yekezkel, Ezekiel, that we have today is a corrupted text. It was, I think, probably far more brutal than it is now. All right, who's willing to kick Ezekiel out of their Bible? You know, not me, but there are people who would. But Ezekiel is certainly the most inflammatory book in the Old Testament. 
I mean, when you read the first three chapters about the flaming chariot and so on and so forth, or called the Ma'asim Merkabah, you know, you have this, you know, you have this structure that begins all kinds of things in Judaism, all of which begin with this very radical book of Yekezkiel or Ezekiel. So uh, we've got some issues, but let's continue on here. Let's go to our next slide here and see where we are. Okay, now let's take a look at this passage. It was very interesting when I was looking at these stones. I found this passage, and this is from Shemuel Sheni, or 2 Samuel, chapter 22, verses 7 through 14. In my distress, I called upon the Yahweh and cried out to my Elohim, and he did hear my voice out of his temple, and my cry did enter into his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven moved and shook because he was wroth. There went up a smoke out of his nostrils and fire out of his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down. The darkness was under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub. You see, he rode upon a cherub, or in many Bibles, cherub, and did fly. And he was seen upon the wings of the wind. And he made darkness pavilions round about him, dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. Through the brightness before him were coals of fire kindled. Yahweh thundered from heaven, and El Elyon uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and discomfited them. Well, isn't that interesting? That's a very difficult passage, will be a difficult passage for a lot of people when you're envisioning that, what's going on there. Is there a second witness to that concept? Yeah, let's go to the next slide. Okay, here's from Tehillim or Psalm 18, verses 6 through 14. See if you recognize the text. In my distress, I called upon the Yahweh and cried out unto my Elohim. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry came before him even into his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations also of the hills moved and were shaken because he was wroth. There went up a smoke out of his nostrils and fire out of his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens and came down, and darkness was under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub and did fly. Yea, he did fly upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place. His sukkah round about him were dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. As the brightness that was before him, his thick clouds passed by, hailstones and coals of fire. Yahweh also thundered in the heavens, and El Elyon gave his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. Yea, he sent out his arrows and scattered them, and he shot out his lightnings and discomfited them. Interesting. Two witnesses to Yahweh flying on a carob. Okay, go ahead. Let's go to the next slide, Jessica. We can do that. All right. The message of the ephod. The message of the ephod. All right, so if we say, okay, let's just forget about these, trying to figure out, is that a diamond, is that a jasper, is that an opal, is that a ruby? What is that? We don't know what the stones are. You're never going to be able to figure it out because they may not be discussing the kind of stone it is, but rather the cut or the shape or the function of the stone, right? So if you take it just from the meaning of the word, the red budding flower is flashing and glistening and is counted, pressed down, and named. Seven rays in covenant golden, whitened, and polished, right? I mean, that's very, very, very interesting. Very, very interesting. Now, compare that with the message of Yekezkel 28, when you're talking about the anointed cherub, Molech, the adversary. The red budding flower is flashing and glistening and is counted, pressed down in names, seven rays in covenant, yet with rancid loathing, poisonous fruit, and blasphemy. Interesting, interesting. Okay. 
So when we look at here, we see in, in Shemot, Exodus 28, 29, it says, And Aharon shall bear at the names of the children of Yasharel in the breastplate of judgment and upon his heart. And he goes into the holy place for a memorial before Yahweh continually. That's Exodus 28, verse 29. So the tribes in the stones, in the order they're set forth, is you know, going from right to left, Reuben, Shimeon, Levi, Yahuda, Ishakar, Zebulun, Da'an, Naphtali, Ga'ad, Asher, Yosef, Benjamin, right? Benjamin being the youngest born. Okay, so all you can see here, these pictures that I put up here, you can see the names that are etched in the stones in the picture on the left. And on the right, you can see the names beneath the stone with the guess about which stone it is and what it looks like. Okay, next slide. Okay. So the message of the ephod, the red budding flower is flashing, glistening, and is counted, pressed down, and named seven rays, and a dream is golden, whitened, and polished, or the covenant. Okay, next. Okay, let's do the Urim, Urim and the Tumim. Now, we're going to talk about what, what the passage actually says in Scripture. Let's don't speculate. Let's see what's read here, okay? And you shall put in or upon the breastplate of judgment at the Urim and at the Tumim, and they shall be upon Aaron's heart when he goes in before Yahweh, and Aharon shall bear at the judgment of the children of Yasharel upon his heart before Yahweh continually. Okay, so we're going to talk about the judgment of Yahweh now. So the Urim, and here I show you the spelling, right? So you have this Aleph, Vav, Resh, and then Yod, Mem, which is the plural. So Aleph, Vav, Resh, is how you spell or, right? Light, right? So maybe better pronounced as the orim, and it literally translates as lights. So this is much easier understood when it's pronounced as orim instead of urim, because we can easily see its root, the word or, aleph bavresh, which means light. Urim or orim is merely its masculine plural. However, it may be also derived from the plural of the word arar. Now, again, this is some speculation when people study this thing. They say, well, maybe it's just two reshes instead of an aleph vav resh. It's aleph resh resh, arar, which means to bitterly curse. And in the plural, arim, arim, which means bitter curses. Now, you can see that you have this potential here for the orim to be light flashing through these stones or ararm, arim, which would be bitter curses flashing through the stones. Remember that the anointed care of also walks among the stones of fire. Okay, next slide. The Tumim. The Tumim here is the plural of the word Tom. You know, again, we have Tom, Atav, Memsafit, which means completeness or integrity or uprightness or even innocence. And it's derived from the three-letter word Atomim, or Tamam, which means to complete, to accomplish, or to come to the full. So the Urim is the lights, and then the Tamim is its completion. So divination by the means of the Urim and the Tumim then yields a result from the lighting of the stones that it is either cursed or not cursed, innocent or not innocent. Okay? So it's very interesting that you have this Urim, the lights, and the Tumim, its completion. All right. 
No, we talk about the Urim and the Tumim. Again, you're talking about a mystery that exists. You know, we don't know. And, and how much do we know? Well, look, at the time of Ezra, they reached an impasse because they could not find anyone who, by genealogy, could stand up with the Urim and the Tumim. In other words, it was something for the sons of Aaron to do. But even by the time of the Second Temple, they could not determine a son of Aaron who could stand up and do the Urim and the Tumim. So it kind of amazes me that we have a lot of people now saying, well, we can trace our lineage back to Aaron. Well, it's very interesting because at the time of Ezra, they couldn't trace anybody back to Aaron. And that was only a 70-year gap, not 2,500 years. And of the children of the priests, the children of Chavayahu, the children of Kotz, the children of Barzillai, which took a woman of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gilati, and was called after name. These sought their register among those that were reckoned by genealogy, but they were not found. Therefore, were they as polluted, put out from the priesthood? And the Tirshatha said to them that they should not eat of the most holy things till there stood up a priest with the Urim and with the Tumim. So we had, so they were going to determine genealogy and a genealogical reckoning by seeing the lights flash through the breastplate. Ah, interesting. Okay, next one, next slide. And they brought him to Iyawa. Oh, here we go, this one's good. They brought him to Iyawusha, and they cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Yahusha thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the Talmudim began to rejoice and praise Yah with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the king that comes in the name of Yahweh, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the perishim from among the multitude said unto him, Rabbi, rebuke your Talmudim. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Which stones? That's the question. Which stones would immediately cry out? And I think what we find is the stones that cry out are the stones of the ephod. The stones of the ephod are what cry out because they make a determination that, in fact, Yahusha is the Mashiach. Woo! <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> Ooh, okay, Dr. Pigeon, I have a lot of questions. Well, comments and questions. So we were talking about this in reference to who, in fact, was in the garden. And I know that there's a lot of reference in Ezekiel uh, to speaking to this uh, king of Tyre, king of Tyre. Um, but in fact, that you're saying that wasn't the case. No, it's not the king of Tyre. I don't believe it's the king of Tyre. I don't either. No, no. Matter of fact, um, you went on to show that this could, in fact, mean that it was some uh, speaking of some other form of of deity. Right. But what's interesting is if we go, um, you know, linguistically or etymologically, if we go to Amos 526 and I do have my verses here, I know I mess up sometimes, but you have to know that I'm, I'm most of my content is off the fly because I have no idea usually what we're going to talk about until the day of. Right. So I don't do any studying prior. So I don't have sometimes I mess up on my facts and that's only because I'm going off the fly off the cuff, <laughs> if you will. So 
but I do have to take some notes here. So Amos 526, what's interesting, if we can go there, I think you would really appreciate this, Dr. P. Uh, and it's regarding the judgment of Israel. And Yehoah is speaking to the prophet Amos, and he says, listen to this, Dr. P. It says, but you have borne the sukkah, the tabernacle of your molech, right? Of your molech, the, the god of the Ammonites. And what's interesting is the first time I ever heard this word here, hyun, right? So the, the sukkah of your molech and hyun, your images, which I think is like from the root word to elevate or to lift up on a pedestal or to, to make high your images, the star of your God, which you've made unto yourselves. Okay. So uh, what's, what's even more interesting is that this word for image, like I told you, this word kiyun is images. And he mentions here the star of their God. Well, Molech here is 4427, as you mentioned earlier, and even giving it more description, it actually means to reign inceptively to ascend the throne. Uh, but you know that in the Hebrew language, there are contronyms. So one word could mean something such as to sanction, uh, which could speak of uh, the consequences of something, as well as enforcing something, right? And so uh, that's just an, uh, the opposite, the sanction, which means both a penalty for disobeying the law and uh, official permission or approval of some sort, right? Sanction. So in this case, it's interesting that this word molech is used to describe one who has is striving to ascend the throne. And again, you're talking about the counterpart or the the enemy of Yahuwah, this is what he has said in his heart that what what has what has the enemy of Yahuwah said in his heart is there not a scripture verse that says that he he claims that he will ascend above the throne of Yahuwah well 44:27 explains that that's what's happening here that there's an ascension to the throne that there's a, co a competition to the throne and that this king um, and what's even more interesting is that this word molech, king, in this sense, is a consonant word which was usually combined with uh, vowels of the Hebrew word boset. And I just scribbled this all down, so forgive me. But the Hebrew word boset, which is H1322. And this word H1322, which I'll look up here, H1322 means shame, to be put to shame. H1322, Dr. Pigeon. And even more so being put to shame, but again, as ascribed to this word Molech, king, the king of shame or the king of sorrow, right? The mm -hmm. king of sorrow to be, to be made destitute, impotent, if you will. And what's even more interesting is that in Genesis chapter 225, it says of the stature of the first Adam that he was not. Bo, 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 boesh, or this word, uh, this Hebrew word. He was not this. He was naked, but not ashamed. So he was not destitute. He was not in a state of want. However, you would think that after his encounter with this idol, this impotent idol, who proclaimed to have power and authority in his vocabulary, in fact, brought down the stature of man and caused him to become impotent in the sense that he could no longer produce or, you know, produce on behalf of Yahuwah, which required 
the work of Yahusha to come forth and to produce a rightful heir or seed, a seed line, a right, the promise, the seed of promise. Jessica, I think we've got, you were, got a little bit of a lock up there. How are you doing? I'm good. Can you hear me? Yeah. What, what was the last thing you heard? <laughs> uh, you were talking about the seed of the promise. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, we talk about Molech, you know, Molech's a very interesting creature, you know, and we've talked, I've talked about this before. And I think you and I talked about this, the idea of passing your children through to Molech and the vast majority of those verses do not have fire in them. It just says passing the children through to Molech. Many of us have seen the images of the, you know, the Molech guy with the arms out like this, you know, with the dog face, yeah. I think, you know. Okay, well, that's one image. It may or may not be Molech. And I don't think it is Molech because I think what the great deception is here is that you have a passage that, you know, this is, it's like a Malach, which is, of course, angel. And it's right. like Melech, which is king. So right. when we talk about Meleki, Sadiq, our king and priest, or your king and priest, Meleki, Sadiq, Meleki, the king, Sadiq, the righteous one, the king and priest. When you talk about Malak, you're talking about an angel, right? So a lot of people thought that it was Malaki Sadiq, the messenger of righteousness, the messenger of righteousness, rather than king and priest. I come to believe, I think it's king and priest, okay, where the kingship and the priesthood is married in the same person which is what you have with Yahushua HaMashiach, king and priest. But when you see, when you talk about this idea of Molech, Molech is something different because it's fallen from the kingship. It's fallen from the angel. It's not the same as the angel. It's slightly different. And it's Molech of this slightly fallen king or slightly fallen angel. Now, it gets worse when you talk about Molech because when you get into this passage in Jeremiah, it talks about baking bread to the queen of heaven. Mm -hmm. Now, this baking bread to the queen of heaven is actually making sacrificial wafers to the queen of heaven. That's what the word actually means. And when you get to the queen of heaven, the Masorites will tell us that the queen of heaven, her name is what? Moleket. Moleket. However, again... We have the Masorites putting their vowel signs in there to say, this is what our opinion of what that word is, without giving you the opportunity to read the Hebrew by yourself and saying, well, let's take a look at that Hebrew and see what it actually says. And then you read it and you, and you discover, oh, it's not Moleket, but could be Molakot, Molekot, Molekot. That is to say, many, many. So it wouldn't be baking bread to the queen of heaven, but baking bread to the queens of heaven. Now, in this case, now we start getting into something quite interesting. I think it's interesting. It kind of scares me, frankly, what, it, what the implications of it are. Because we talked about this before, too, that when you look at the fallen angels that came down, when the fallen angels came down, it tells us that they had relations with human women, that they, you know, necessarily disguised themselves as men, and therefore had relations with human women and then had offspring that were giants, Nephilim. The Nephilim had offspring which were Nephilim. And this resulted in the flood and the destruction of all of them. However, but, but Moses tells us they were with us then and after, before the flood and after. So if they came after the flood, now the question becomes, all right, they came after the flood. Did they come back in the same 
the same kind of conception. In other words, did they come back as men who were going to have relationships with women? Or did they come back and assume the form of women? Molech, you see? And so when you see when I see the word molekot, that's a feminine ending. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that molech is feminine, but it could mean that. And the, the ancient authors can certainly construed it as queen of heaven, not king of heaven, queen of heaven. And so, and we also know that when we when we see modern DNA, we see that this what's called microchimerism taking place when a woman who is not the mother of the con conceived egg, of the conceived ovum, that you have the Y DNA of a man and, and the empty DNA of a woman, and that fertilized egg is then placed into a donor woman who then her DNA is, is captured in that child through a process that's called microchimerism, microchimerism, third-party DNA. So is this what was meant by passing your children through to Molech? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I wasn't there. I don't know. But I do know that we have, we've come upon a great mystery in Scripture as to who is this Molech. Is Molech, in fact, female? Or did Molech take the form of a female form when coming to the earth? I don't know. And it's possible that as a cherub or a cherub or a cherub, depending on how you want to pronounce it, that it was, you know, uh, what you would call asexual when it came to the garden, right? Not a sexual creature at all, asexual. Because remember, Mashiach says that you, you are greatly mistaken that when man and uh, when mankind dies, there is no marriage in heaven because they're like the angels. There is no marriage in heaven. You remember him saying this in the gospel? Yes. Okay, so that, that probably implies that the cherub was asexual. And just a, a, you know, delivering a temptation that was a temptation of, you know, you can be like Yahweh, you can have the knowledge of good and evil, you can know all things. And did he really say you will surely die? Did he really say that? You won't surely die. Then he lies, right? You won't surely die, right? And so when we talk about this carob walking in the Garden of Eden, so we know that a carob is what? A carob is some kind of flying angel. Because we saw two passages there, one in 2 Samuel, and again, the same passage reiterated in the Psalm of David. That's two witnesses in Scripture telling us that the cherub is some kind of flying angel. Now, it doesn't appear to be the kind of flying angel that you see with the seraph, right? The seraph is, has six wings, according to the two eyewitnesses, one being Yeshayahu, or Isaiah, the other being Yochanan, or John, in the book of Revelation. They both are translated into the throne room, and they both have visions of the seraphim. Seraphim being plural for seraph. Seraph being what? A six-winged angel. Two above the head, two with which they fly, and two to cover themselves, right? This is how it, it's described in the book of Yeshayahu, or Isaiah, and in the book of Revelation. That's how the seraph or the seraphim, are described, also having four faces, right? The cherub is something different. And the cherubim, you know, you might say cherubim or the cherubim, the cherubim, that class of angels, appear to be large angels that are capable of flying. This particular cherub was anointed and was in the garden. So 
the chances are very, very high, given the testimony of Mashiach, that the carob was, in fact, asexual, but was capable of flying. I mean, these are the images you see throughout all of historic art about who was tempting, you know, Hua in the garden, right? Well, it's interesting that uh, Yahusha says, and there's many verses, actually, I was, I'm going to look them up in just a second, but uh, there are many verses that make reference to uh, these fallen ones also uh, being likened to stars or fallen stars, right? Falling stars, where even Yahusha says that he looked up to heaven and saw Hasatan falling uh, from heaven, even as a star. But you had also mentioned a few other things where you were actually looking what I would think it would be the contronym of these particular words in their opposing form. Um, but you did mention a few words like dazzle and shine. And I want to share something, if I may, um, here really quick. Let me just share my screen. Um, I had written, I'd written this a while back regarding this particular word here. And it's the word Zohar. And I know we know what the book is, but I just, again, want to show you what I wrote here a while back in 2018. Actually, what I wrote it like in 2016, but I updated it. So it's interesting that this word Zohar from 6714 is a Hebrew word meaning white or to dazzle or to shine, but it also means splendor or radiance. And you had actually mentioned those words. And in the scripture, the word Zohar is actually used in Ezekiel 8.2 as 2096 from 2094, meaning to enlighten or to teach. Now, the Hebrew word let, uh, root letters are Zadik, He, and Resh. The ancient Hebrew gives a picture of glimmering oil pressed out of olives. And if, for example, like the anointing, right? And is used and is a depiction of the oil of anointing known also as the Mashiach. Some people know this term Zohar as the foundational work in the literature of Jewish mystical thought known as Kabbalah. In my research, I have found that this resource, the Zohar, along with Kabbalism, is of a strange fire or a different type of light, some form of counterfeit oil compared to true revelation given by the Ruach, that which is anointed or set apart. So I go on. And what's interesting here, Dr. Pigeon, is that in Daniel 12, 3, the word Zohar is used to describe the wise and the righteous. And the opposing view would be held in Matthew 23, 27. It's the same word using a lexicon. It shows you that the word used in Matthew 23, 27 to speak of the graves in which these hypocrites, uh, Yahushua def uh, describes these individuals as whitewashed tombs, but these sepulchres or these graves are uh, come from this word Zohar, believe it or not, where in fact they are outwardly white or bright. And so it goes on and on. And if, I'll, if, if you guys want a copy of this, I'll give you a copy. But uh, my point here, Dr. Pigeon, is again, we see that this, this concept of, of being some sort of anointed teacher or someone who has been anointed to do something or to be a leader, to be a chief, uh, to erect itself. It's interesting that we see a concept as such as the stars of heaven, right? Um, in another verse, and I don't know the exact verse, I'm sure that you do, where it says that as the, the translator says that Lucifer, when in fact it's the word halal, right? Which means uh, the howling one. But it's 
it's redefined as Lucifer, which in Latin means the light bearer. So again, if we put this all together, what we see is this contest for the anointing, the ability to enlighten the eyes of someone's understanding, which in fact, this entity could be placed in the garden. This very same entity that you're speaking of could in fact be placed in the garden as a shimmering light, a Zohar, a, 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 an appearing light, right? And the scriptures tell us that even Satan himself appears, comes as in the appearing as an angel of light. So again, we can pretty much place him in the garden and, and appearing to be as this brilliant light, the shining one, the shimmering one with all of his brilliant stones and whatnot, but shining all together in the sense that he is, is appearing to be elevated, capable of enlightening or opening the eyes of understanding. Now, if I may, please. Um, uh, before, before, before you go on, just yes. one second, Jessica. Go for it. You're making a very good point here. You know, when you talk about Zohar, again, you know, when you look at this construct, we see in the in this, you know, list of stones, Zohab or Zohav, right? Okay. And so you have this idea of this Saudi bait. But, you know, the interesting thing about the bait, look, with the bait is, well, let's see if I can do it backwards here. The bait is like this, and then it has a leg this way, right? So when it's written, it's like this with a leg this way. When you roll the scroll, when you roll the scroll, it's very easy to separate that underlying bottom line from this. So if you have this, let's say I'm doing the, trying to do it backwards. If you have this, the resh, right? Resh, mm. then an under, underline, right? Mm. So if you have resh with a vowel sign ah, it's very similar to the bait. And if the Torah scroll is rolled, you might get that separation in the ink, you see, from where that happens. And so it's very interesting because you see so much of the use of the word Zohar in the New Testament, as you do see the word Kabbalah in the New Testament quite often in many, many places. And people say, well, you know, Kabbalah is this, you know, because Madonna adopted it. Therefore, Kabbalah is right, right. Zohar is that because, you know, guess what? It's Zohar was you know, written by the Jews in the 14th century. But when you talk about the Zohar, and this is what's so important about your writing on this, uh, because you're making a very good point, Jessica, because the Zohar itself, you know, you're talking about a document that was constructed 1400 years later and by people who have been spiritually blinded for 1400 years. You know, I mean, this is the whole thing this is what Paul talks about. They were blinded that the other nations might come in. You know, in Romans, he said they were blinded in part, blinded in part that the other nations might come in. That's such an important part. And, you know, so when you see a construct that's being built and so much of this construct that's being built is, you know, think of it like this. You know, you're told we're going to build the tower, right? And the tower is coming along, and you're building it out of concrete, you're building it out of metal, you're building that out of out of glass, you're building this tower. And then one day it comes along, and you say, guess what? You guys don't get any more glass, concrete, or steel, but you've got some wood over here. And so they say, well, we have to build a tower, not knowing that their building the tower has been taken away from them. It's been taken away that the others might come in. And so they build a construct that is... But they kind of like what they think it should be, but it's no longer anointed because the temple is within. The temple is within. And because the temple is within, try to forever build the, te the temple that is without, right? Next year in Jerusalem, we're going to get there and we're going to build the third temple, right? 
and we're going to sacrifice the, the 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 you know the red heifer, and we're going to put up the altar, right. and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that, and all of that stuff ignores that the temple is within, and that we are the living sacrifice, and that our prayers are the burnt offering. You know, that these things have become what is the true anointing. What is you know what is the step of the true faith because of the revelation of Yahusha Hamashiach because of his revelation because of his revealing his revealing because he was revealed because of the work that he did and you know and this is the manifestation (laughs) and the great glory of Yahweh who set himself forth in the flesh the word was flesh and was revealed and because of that we have the true temple we have the true glass we have the true steel we have the true concrete and it's the yoke is easy the burden is light stop carrying all that stuff around right stop carrying all that stuff around and if people would understand that particularly in judaism if they could understand that they would see oh okay you know like uh, what's his name rabbi shearson schneerson you know we want messiah now we want messiah now well he's right here <laughs> you know it's like it's like going into a, a, a trump press conference he comes up and he's standing at the podium and you get the chance to ask him a question. You said, if I demand the right to speak to Donald Trump, I demand it. I'd... He's standing right there. What are you waiting for? Right. I'm not trying to compare Donald Trump to Mashiach. Don't get me wrong. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody throws stones at me. No, no. It's especially in light of what's going on in all his tweets. I know that he had just, I, I don't know the whole fact. I, I just kind of glimpsed at it, but I saw somewhere where he, I think, Again, I don't know the facts, but somewhere where he is uh, comparing himself to the second coming of Messiah, or well, it's that's no, he said, "I am the chosen one." Ah, there you go. When it comes to dealing with China, and basically, you know, oh, yeah, Harry Harry Truman said, "You know, the buck stops here," which he didn't. You know, he passed it on to MacArthur, and but you know, but uh, uh, Trump is trying to say, "Well, you know, look, I'm the one that got stuck with this job. I'm the one that got chosen to fight back China." Okay, I mean, fair enough, but he may he may feel that he was ordained or commissioned at a time like this to take on China, you know, because we have a trade imbalance with them of about eight hundred billion a year. Okay, so he's going to take that on. Okay, all right, fine, all right, but you know, it's been construed as him having a messianic complex, you know, mm. right? Uh, and you know, uh, you know, I can tell you, I mean, look, I'm glad I don't have that that job. I really am. Right. I, you know, you know, it's just, you know, all the dynamics that are associated with it, you know, and uh, we think we have tough skin. But imagine you're sitting there in president with every, half the world no. calling everything under the sun. No. Right? You have to either have tough skin or a lot of money. So but back to back to this concept of Zohar, I think, again, it's interesting. I want to bring up another verse, Dr. Pigeon here in Daniel 12, 3. And I know, again, you know, the biggest mistake that we can make is uh leaning upon our own understanding. And I think um, often we do that. We, we lean on our own understanding and, you know, it's, it's easier. It's easier than to challenge uh, these particular things. But you're right. This word Zohar is nothing to be intimidated by. Neither is the word Kabbalah. Um, but again, we shouldn't be intimidated by searching these things out. In Daniel 12, 3, it says, and they that be wise, and look at this is the word, it says they shall be as Zohars. Isn't that interesting? Um, so that they that be wise. And so what I'm trying to show here is that, again, you're you're trying to place this entity in the garden, which in Ezekiel, it says that he was present in the garden, that he was likened to a tree that was beautiful and expressed itself in beauty to the point where the other trees were jealous of his 
beauty. However, because of his beauty, he became pomp. What's interesting though, in a parallel, Tyre or Tyre is also uh, spoken of in the same manner. The, the city that in, in this pomp and elegance has sold out for trafficking, for merchandising, but she also in her pomp has, has been made known as beautiful, but will be brought low. So this entity that was in the garden, it said that the uh, birds would rest in the bowels of the tree and the roots went deep and the other trees were jealous and there you were in the garden of ill. So here in Daniel 12, three, it says, and they that be wise, they that be wise shall shine Zahar from this word Zohar. It means to gleam, to be enlightened, to admonish, to shine, to teach again, to teach as the brightness of the firmament. And they that turn many to righteousness, watch this, as the stars forever and ever. Now, what's interesting is if I take this word here, uh, Zohar or Zahar, and I use my lexicon, which I can do on my computer, I have software to do that, and I use, I find a related word in the Greek, what I come to is this word archon, archon in the Greek. Mm -hmm. And archon is this word prince ruler or a magistrate. So in rank and in power, a prince, a prince or chief ruler. So again, we can see that these words are describing this, this elevated one, this chief ruler, this principality that has exalted itself above the knowledge of Yahuwah and has come and appeared. And what's even more interesting, Dr. Pigeon is here in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. It says, for such men, now watch this again, a false teacher in the garden falsely prophesying that, oh, should you eat from this tree, you shall become wise, you shall be glistening, right? You shall be enlightened and your eyes will be open and you shall be like Elohim's. Now watch, it says, and such are these men, false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as workers of Mashiach, you see? as the anointed ones. And no wonder for Hasatan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Now, Dr. Pigeon, we love words here, right? This word comes from phos, but it's an, a root word is faino, faino, five, three, one, six. And faino means to bring to pass or to cause something to appear, to make it happen. So again, we can see that whatever this entity is, it is being worshipped as the star of heaven, even as you said, the queen of heaven or the stars of heaven, an entity that is enlightened or in actuality what this entity does is darken the minds of men. Darken yeah, the now, minds of men. Yeah, now let's, well, again, we saw, you know, some of this elements of, if you take out the musical instruments, the tambourine and the pipes, and you look at what it says, you know, this nakav is blasphemy, right? And of course, the puach of poisonous fruit. You know, mm. the, the, the fruit of this ministry, the fruit mm. of this ministry is blasphemy, is mm. blasphemy. Now, when you say, when we talk about Zohar, let's go back to Zohar for a minute. In the in the Ezekiel passage, we looked at, we saw the word zahav, zahav. Mm -hmm. And so, so the Zohar is also possibly zahar, zahar. Uh, because again, you know, the Zoe is a is once again a Masoretic construct. But when you see this, you know, when you you know, you see the you know the Jews have said, okay, well, look, we've got this text, 
And you have to remember, this is an emerging religion, right? And so, the, you know, unlike a lot of the other, uh, you know, theologies that were going on, let, you know, look, let's talk about the condition of Christianity when the Zohar was written, okay? When you had the collapse of Western Rome around, around 450 AD, you know, the Corpus Juris Civilis was out. It had as almost as much law as we have here in the United States, written law as we have here in the United States, the Corpus Juris Civilis, the Justinian Code, so on and so forth, huge body of law. And that's around 450 AD. By the time you get to 600 AD with the, with the anointing of Charlemagne, he could neither read nor write, okay? And from 600 AD until William the Conqueror in 1066, you had basically darkness in the quote-unquote Christian world. You know, the, the the Vatican was teaching, thou shalt not read. We'll tell you what, the, what it says. We'll tell you what it says. Thou shalt not read. Thou shalt not know. I rebuke your education. I rebuke your ability to read. I rebuke your ability to think. We do that, not you. You farm, we think. We pray, you farm. We think and pray. You mm. farm, we read, <laughs> you farm, right? And then the guys that got tired of farming fought. You know, they, they forged some swords, went out and beat up everybody. And so you start to see things start to change with this emergence of banking in the Knights Templar, right? When the Knights Templar started to form. And they formed by creating a land trust. You had to be a land owner to join the Knights Templar. And then you would dedicate your land to the Knights, to the Knights Templar. And it would become their property. And very quickly, they became the largest landowner in Europe as these young men joined, right? Well, you know, in this period, so you get to 1066 with, with uh, William the Conqueror, you begin to see feudalism emerge, you begin to see glimmers of things start to take place, right? Some emerging music starts to come out here around the 11th century and the 12th century. We start getting a little bit of polyphony. But in the meantime, what's going on in Judaism? What's happening there in Spain, right, among the Sephardim? What's happening is... Oh, you get Maimonides, and, and you get this train of thought, you get this intellectual thought that's taking place by doing what? Reading the Hebrew scriptures. Mm -hmm. So they put together this words, and they say, and you have to remember that when you're talking about Yekezkel, Ezekiel, this book, Ezekiel, was considered so radical that at the, at the, at the Council of Jamnia, they wanted to kick the book out of the Tanakh. They wanted to get rid of it and Daniel. Get him out of here, right? Mm -hmm. When he made the Tanakh a 37-book 37, uh, 37 book. But they did not do that. Instead, they harmonized Ezekiel. But they readily admit that Ezekiel is the father of Jewish mysticism with the Maaseh Merkabah, the axe of the chariot. You know, he has Yahweh coming in in a flying chariot with wheels inside of wheels. Remember all this stuff? We know that the wheels inside of wheels are actually Ophanim, which is a form like cherubim or seraphim. It's a form of angel, these Ophanim, these wheels inside of wheels. Anyway, when we talk about these wheels inside of wheels, we think we know what they are. We don't. We don't. We think we do, but we don't. <laughs> and you see this use of this idea of Zahav or Zahar, Zahar. And so these Jews say, well, let's put together this text that, that is enlightenment, right? Now, we in the West, we can talk about the age of enlightenment. Nobody goes into a conniption fit. Uh, did you ever study any books out of the age of the enlightenment? Yes, I did. But if you say that in Jewish, did you ever study any of the works from the Zohar? Oh, you, you know, you occult, Satan-worshipping, serpent-loving, you know, <laughs> you know, and, and because all you have to do is mention things Jewish and all of a sudden you're Madonna, you know? And so, you know, so, I mean, I have to tell you, I mean, you know, and I'm not here to sit here and defend the Zohar and I'm not here to sit and defend Kabbalah, but I'm telling you, when you see the passage in John where Mashiach says, 
Mashiach breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Ruach HaKodesh. Okay? In Hebrew, he said, Kabalu et Ruach HaKodesh. Now, you might think he spoke Greek, but I don't think he spoke Greek. I think he spoke Hebrew. He spoke Hebrew. And, you know, there are so many passages. In fact, the word Kabal in the Tanakh only appears nine times. But it appears over a hundred times in the New Testament. Over a hundred times it appears. Now, I'm going to have, a, I'm going to be releasing a blog this Sunday on this topic, and you can read through and see what it is when you're talking about this idea of Kabbalah, right? Kabbalah means to, it's the condition of receiving, receiving, right? So when John says, he came unto his own and they received him not, he literally says, lo Kabbalah, they did not receive it. And it's the same thing with Zohar. You're talking about Zohar here, Zahar, Zahav, this idea of enlightenment. Okay, now on one hand, the knowledge of good and evil is an enlightenment that is an enlightening to evil, right? It's an enlightening to dark things. Most importantly, what we see from this anointed cherub, this Molech, the adversary that's found in Ezekiel 28, is what? We see that he or she, whatever it may have been, he or she, that particular cherub, its ministry was the fruit of blasphemy. Hmm. Okay, so let's go back to this word where there was gold that we said was Zahav, Zahav. If that was Zahar, right? Zahar, this would be the this would be the um, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, nine. It would be the tenth gem, the tenth gem, gold. Uh, so you have gold, and then you have tabrets and uh, and pipes, right? Those are the three that are the last three gems that are described in Ezekiel. But the gold is Zahar or Zahab, right? So you have this enlightenment, you have this lightened enlightenment. Your enlightenment is the ministry of the fruit of blasphemy. Your enlightenment is the ministry of the fruit of, fruit of blasphemy. So now we begin to see, so you know, see, this is one of the things that I want to encourage people who are critically thinking people. Instead of getting uptight, you know, getting your underwear in a bunch because somebody said a Jewish word in front of you, instead of doing that, take the time to consider. You have to remember that, you, you know, a critically thinking mind does not get obfuscated by a logical, uh, 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 you know, logical um, inconsistencies or logical fallacies. So, for instance, I'll give you an example. The KJV was a tainted Bible. Why? Well, Francis Bacon was a Mason. Okay, but that doesn't say anything to me. That doesn't say that doesn't say one word about the work he did inside the text. Well, King James was a homosexual. Okay, well, show me how that changed the text of the script. Well, Westcott and Hort had two lesbians working with them. Okay, show me how that changed the text of the script. Well, Westcott and Hort used to do seances. Okay, show me how that changed the text of the script. In other words, if we were in court, all that stuff would be totally irrelevant. It would be the subject of an objection, and it would be stricken from the record. It would. However, it would be effective in the, in the sense that it's used to campaign against an individual or to slander someone's character. And it's usually effective among a culture that's uh, founded on honor and shame, right? Or case systems. But what's interesting, Dr. Pigeon, is that you say that. However, what about the fact that the word tells us that, that we are inspired by the set apart spirit or that the men who documented their experience with Yahuwah were in fact recording as his Ruach 
revealed it to yeah, them. Amen. And so amen. if these individuals were in fact practicing homosexuality or other things, then what, what was inspiring them to do these things? Could it have been that you have a lot of truth with a little bit of lie, but even, even a little leaven can well, ruin the whole life, right? Well, there is a little bit of lie in the KJV, okay? And let's talk about what that is. You know, better than 90% of the KJV is found in the 1560 Geneva, right? I mean, you have the 1560 Geneva, which about 90% of that is found in the 1537 Coverdale. If you ever get those books and you compare them verse on verse on verse, you will see that John Calvin didn't do this enormous work. He took from the work of Coverdale. And Coverdale was the guy who was translating with Tyndale. So Tyndale is the guy who did the hard work. And Tyndale, you know, couldn't spell a single word the same way in the same sentence, right? So you go back and you read Tyndale, it's like, okay, I'm trying to read that, Tyndale, it's pretty hard. But he was, you know, and, and but look, there is no worker in scripture that is sinless, period, ever. There's been one sinless person on this earth, everybody else is a sinner. Right, no, it's not about sin, but it's about being, influ like, what influenced that individual, right? What was in All right, well, let's say that King James was a homosexual. I don't know how many verses he actively changed. Let's say that that story is true. Okay, so where do you see that influence in, in the King James Bible? True. I mean, like, let me give you an example. Let's say, for instance, you had a guy come in and he, and he committed an armed robbery in a 7-Eleven, right? And then we, we get him on the stand and I bring in three witnesses to say, well, I've got three guys here testifying that you're a homosexual. What does that have to do with whether or not he pulled a gun on the clerk at the 7-Eleven? You know, you only have to prove that he pulled a gun on the clerk at the 7-Eleven, yes or no. I mean, that's the open and shut case. The other stuff is irrelevant. Well, so but because, well, but the word tells us that sin, when we are actively sinning, it quenches the spirit. So that's right. if he was actively sinning, then he would have quenched the spirit. The spirit would have not been revealing great mysteries or would not have chosen him in his active sin to write these things out. We even see from the example right. that Paul right. gives us that we are we are working daily. We're working against sin, right? But we're working daily towards our salvation, which is the perfecting of our faith. Yeah, I hear you, Jessica. And what I'm saying to you is that, and that's probably- I'm just thinking critical. Yeah. I'm challenging no. you in such a way that because no, no, people have that. these questions, right? So you can yeah. respond to them. And I think I think you're making a good point. I mean, the thing is, you know, the truth be told is that King James did almost no interpreting of the King James Bible. It was just named after him, right? He had, you know, I don't know, 40 plus interpreters from three different universities working on it. He hired a bunch of people. Yeah. And so I don't know. I, I don't know how many words, how many uh, particular verses he was responsible for, if any. But, you know, so uh, and then when you look when you look at, at Francis Bacon, I mean, it's another question, too. We don't know what his Masonic practices were. I mean, I don't know. You know, I don't know what the condition of the Masonic Hall was. I wasn't there. We can speculate that after Albert Pike, we certainly had a lot of deep, dark stuff going on in the Masonic Hall. Did, was that going on at the time of Francis Bacon? I don't know. And it's, but we do know, like with Westcott and Hort, there's some interesting things. For instance, we can point to the fact that Westcott and Hort relied upon the known forgery, which is the Codex Sinaiticus. He was instructed. They were instructed when they, you know, bought out the Codex Sinaiticus, or when the, the guy who found the Codex Sinaiticus presented it to the public, the guy who wrote it wrote to the London Times and said, I wrote that. I wrote it, and it was a poor work. I was writing it for the czar. So you had the guy who 
forged the Codex Sinaiticus coming forward in public and telling the world, I forged it and it was a rotten job, right? Wow. <laughs> and he published it in the London newspaper, right? And nonetheless, Westcott and Hort said, we're going to use this forged text, the forged text because we like it. We like what it eliminated. We like what it doesn't have. And in addition to that, Westcott and Hort also produced a forged copy of the, of the minutes from the Council of Laodicea. They added this 19th paragraph to the, to the minutes of the Council of Nicaea. They're the only ones that had this one. There was like 18 versions of this thing. None of them had this last paragraph until Westcott and Hort show up. Oh, we found a new one that had this paragraph that said there's only 66 books. They conveniently found that. Now, so well, I can say, well, Westcott and Hort were engaged in seances or Westcott and Hort were smoking marijuana in the back room or whatever it was that they were doing. But the fact of the matter is we have hard evidence that they relied on a forged text, the Codex Sinaiticus, and that they forged or had someone else forge for them a, a dummied up copy of the minutes from the Council of Laodicea declaring this new canon that didn't exist in the minutes before. Now, that is conduct that should be worthy of condemnation. But when you're talking about the mistakes that, that Tyndale made or the mistakes that John Calvin made or the mistakes that the KJV interpreters made, okay, th there were mistakes made. Those mistakes are forgivable in my, in my opinion, right? They did the best work they could in almost every case. Now, I, there's some places, look, King, King James, when you talk about his tainting, okay, he laid down 13 rules and said these 13 things were not going to change. One of them was the ineffable name doctrine. Right. And another one was maintaining the on the first day in those seven cases where the word sabaton appears in the text. Right. Now, if you read the preface to the KJV, you'll see that the authors talk about the fact that, look, this book is going to be a little bit vulgar because the English language is vulgar. And so we intend to keep it a little bit crass and we're not going to be constricted by the hobgoblin of consistency. In other words, we can have Isaiah over here and Esaias over here, Elijah over here and Elias over here, Holy Spirit over here and Holy Ghost over there. You know, they did those things knowing that they were inconsistent. And they said, we're doing this for a public that is vulgar and we're writing in a vulgar language. Okay. All right. Understood. Understood. Right. So we don't have to sit here and belabor and talk about, gee, King James is a homosexual. If you're going to criticize the work, criticize the work. Right. Criticize the work. Now it's the same thing when you come to when you come to talking about these things Jewish. A lot of people are just greatly upset about Jewish practices. Well, don't be upset about Jewish practices. Jewish practices are the practice of those people who are partially blind, right? If you know, would you go into a blind guy's house, find a Bible in Braille, and say this thing blasphemes, you know, because it's in Braille? It's obviously a blaspheming diet. No, you wouldn't do that. And it's the same thing when it comes to Judaism. A lot of these things that the Jews have constructed in Jewish mysticism is their attempt to build a structure uh, in which they can understand what's going on in scripture. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to build a structure that they can, so that they can understand what's going on in, in, in scripture. Unfortunately for them, they're leaving out the key to understanding, which is Yahusha. They're leaving out the wisdom and the knowledge of the Father, which is the Ruach HaKodesh, which was given to everyone who confesses the name of Yahusha. If they did that, these other constructs that they have built would fall away. 
So it's my opinion that uh, there, you know, the man and the woman, the Adam and Hava in the garden, they ate from the tree. It's not, this is not an opinion, this is a fact. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, tov and ra. So the potential uh, to, to choose between these two elements is given to everybody, right? That's Everybody has the potential to be both good and evil, unfortunately. Now, what's interesting is that um, people will, you know, try to, I think, try to glorify or make something very spectacular for whatever reason, Dr. Pigeon, for whatever reason, people tend to do these things. But I love the way that you're simplifying it, making it very educational, as, as though we should be people of integrity, as though we should be informed. You're never more threatening to the powers that be and, uh, than when you're informed, an, an informed citizen. So that's what we should be. What's interesting here is that what you're saying is that these individuals grappled with and did their best to reason with the religion of their forefathers and being disconnected from it for so long, come back in and they're, they're grappling with it. They're reasoning with it. And they bring about these doctrines, these, these books, these theories, these concepts, these, these revelations, whatever you want to call them. Now, what men do with them, something completely different. There's wicked men everywhere. Matter of, fact, matter of fact, the Christian Bible itself was used, was it not, by Hitler and by many men uh, to Nazis uh, to to kill people, to harm people, to do horrible things in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of Christianity, in the name of religion, um, Catholicism. I mean, there's been many uh, spiritual wars, spiritual battles that raged from the beginning of time, have there not, on, on behalf of faith and religion. So what people do with that information does, it shouldn't, in other words, what Madonna does with Kabbalah, you know, um, I wanted to bring something up. Romans chapter 11, 25. It's speaking of all Yasharel shall be saved. It says, for if you were cut from a wild olive tree and contrary to nature were grafted into one that is cultivated, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive trees? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you will not be conceited. A hardening, in part, has come to Yasharel until the full number of the Goim, or the Gentiles, or the nations, has come in. And so all Yasharel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove godlessness from Yahov. So you're right in the sense that if there are if there are people that perhaps, how do we know the integrity of someone's heart? We can't. We cannot discern the heart. It's only Yahuwah can do that, right? So we can't go about saying just because they give off the, appear the appearance of error, we can't say that that is not a redeemed person. That person is not worthy of redemption. We can't say that, but we can say that a tree that bears a certain kind of fruit, well, if it's an it, apple, it's it an wicked. apple. It's wicked. Yeah, sure. And you know, when you talk about that, you know, there was a real wickedness that came out. Uh, you know, people talk about Sabati Tzvi. Now, Sabati Tzvi was a wicked guy. You know, he, he converted to Islam by force and uh, and then he started practicing tekiya, right? And which was lying about his faith, and he promoted lying. And he answered the question that Paul asked, 
should we sin that grace might abound more? He said, yes. Right. And that Jacob Frank, who took, you know, took that bull by the horns and then rode that bull right into Europe. Oh, yeah. Let's just break out the sin. Right. Well, he wasn't the only one that did that. Martin Luther reached the same conclusion. Martin Luther in some of his early writings said, yeah, it's OK to murder and rape. You're going to be forgiven. Uh, Rasputin, you know, the, the Russian monk, you know, he said, look, you cannot repent unless you've sinned. So let's sin that grace might abound. So the answer to the question for them, shall we sin that grace might abound? The answer was yes. Paul told us early on, no, never, no, no <laughs> never. Right. And so what you see is, is it wasn't just a trend in Judaism. It was also a trend in Christianity and it's been a trend in Christianity. And, you know, when you see this when I look at Christianity, I mean, my big criticism is the lawlessness, you know, the anomianism, the antinomianism that is preached in church after church after church after church after church, right? From the book of Galatians. <laughs> yeah, that's, I know they're very quick to reach for Galatians and say, here you go, boom, boom, boom. We'll talk about that in one of the upcoming shows. We will, Jessica, we'll spend some time okay. on that book. But, you know, when you when you talk about that, you know, so, you, so I see this anomianism and this anomianism has led to a complete corruption. Look at the fruit of that tree, that of this anomianism that's been taught in the Christian church in America since I think maybe 1954, when they passed the Johnson Amendment, look at the fruit of the tree. Look at the corrupt. Tell me that we're a sanctified nation now. Go ahead and try to tell me that. There's no way. The very, you know, the, if there was a Christian flag that was hanging somewhere, you're down to the last few threads fluttering in the wind. It's almost completely 100% gone. You know, I was talking with a friend of mine the other day, and we talked about the fact that when we were kids, you know, we would go outside and play until the sun went down. And our parents never worried about us, never called on us, nothing. We would be out, we, we would go out to play, and we would be gone, and then we'd come home when the sun went down. That's when we came home, right? And the neighbors didn't say anything. My parents used to park their car in the front yard with their keys in it. We never locked the door at night. I mean, that's the way the world was, right? That's the way the world was. It's not like that anymore. It's not even close. You don't, you know, most parents I knew wouldn't let their kids play in the front yard, you know? And so, uh, you know, so when we talk about these kinds of things, we talk about the world that's become, how did we get here? Well, it's a lot of it is preaching anomianism and antinomianism from the pulpit. Get away from me, you workers of iniquity. Get away from me, you workers of iniquity, as Mashiach said to them. So that's my big criticism there. But when you talk about, when you see people go into a panic, over Judaism when it's a topic they don't know about. You know, they take a passage out of the Talmud and say, well, this guy said this is the case, not knowing that these guys are arguing in the Talmud, right? They're arguing in the Talmud. And this guy's making an argument of a point and another guy's responding to that argument. And so, you know, yeah. wait, go ahead. If I may, my, my second my second concern is that, and again, I'm, I'm being the uh, the you know the devil's advocate here. But um, so my second concern is that if in fact these individuals are devoid of anything, it's because or in, uh, devoid of knowledge that leads to salvation, it's because they have renounced Yahusha. It's because they have renounced the sure mercies of Christ, Mashiach. And as a result, they do not house within them the active work of the set-apart spirit that brings forth the revelation of truth that leads to life. Therefore, their writings, although they may be entertaining 
at the least and may occupy time and space. I mean, to the point where they argue about whether or not it's energy to stir your coffee cup, uh, that if you allow the sugar to dissolve on its own, is that work? I've heard these arguments, Dr. P. Um, so it can become very tedious to the point where they strain at gnats and swallow. Amen. Amen. However, let me just say, Dr. P, that again, even though they may not be wicked documents in the sense that they are not being uh, corrupt and, and, pro and provoking you to be corrupt, but because they are devoid, uh, it becomes vain. It's just empty, sure. vain conversations. Yeah, is yeah, it yeah. Not? yeah, yeah. I mean, I agree with that entirely. I mean, there's a, you know, there's a great scene in the opening of the Frisco Kid, which was uh, Gene Wilder, you know, playing a Jewish rabbi who was leaving from Poland and he's going out to uh, establish a synagogue in San Francisco, right? So, you know, it's a rabbi in the old West is the theme, but it's a very interesting opening sequence because he's called in to the meeting of the rabbis and they're determining who's going to be sent to America. And, you know, they flash in, inside and here's 12 rabbis sitting at the table with the chief rabbi and they're all pounding on the table and screaming at the top of their lungs. And there isn't yeah. one of them listening to the other They've all got the perfect point. They all know what they're talking about and they're all beating their fists and they're just, you know, it's ridiculous. And this is this is why, I mean, you know, a lot of congregations like to practice midrash. I don't like to practice midrash. I don't like to do that. That's arguing, it's ridiculous. What, why don't you practice worship instead of midrash? You know, practice worship, practice prayer instead of midrash. This business of argue, 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 fight, fight, fight. You're right, it's vanity and when you talk about, you know, and this is something that I tell people all the time. I said, look, if somebody has not confessed Mashiach, why am I interested in their prophecy? Right. Why would I be interested in their prophecy? If someone is not keeping the Shabbat, why am I interested in their prophecy? I mean, I just don't know why I would do that. If your walk is outside the conspicuous instruction of Scripture, why am I interested in your, in your, in your prophecy? Why would I be interested in what you have to say? And I hear people all the time, you know, I'm going to prophesy this, I'm going to prophesy that, and, you know, and it's uh, obsequious and it's vain. You're right. And so when you talk about, you're, you're right about this vanity. Now, look, it's the same thing with the secular book. You know, you read Jonathan Swift or you read, uh, you know, J.K. Rowling, whatever you're reading. If it's not inspired by the Ruach HaKodesh, it might be entertaining, but it has about the meaning of a, right. you know. But it does not solicit a promise for salvation. See, that's the difference, Dr. P, nor does it give that impression. And so the fact that these particular, like the Talmud or the or the Mishnah or whatever the case may be, these books do solicit that, that idea. They solicit that the knowledge therein is uh, the constitution of the Commonwealth of Israel. And yes, but that, if you look at that, Jessica, look at where it leads, okay? Because let's talk about the fruit of the tree in Judaism. We talked about the fruit of the tree in Christianity. Let's talk about the fruit of the tree in Judaism. What is it? Well, for the most part, atheism. That's what is the fruit of the tree in Judaism. And you see it all the time. When you have an instruction in the Talmud saying the rabbi is superior to the text, which is what the inherent teaching in the Talmud is. My rabbinical opinion about what Moshe wrote is what's binding, not what Moshe wrote. Right? That's what the Talmud tells you right off the bat. That's what the Mishnah tells you right off the bat, that the rabbis have authority over the written word. It, Absolutely. It's, it's the same instruction you get from the Catholic Church. The church has authority over the written word, right? right? And so as a consequence, you know, you're talking about really two sides of the same coin. And what you end up with is you end up with whenever you have somebody, whenever man asserts himself over God, you have tyranny. That's what you have. 
whenever Yah is asserted over mankind, you have liberty, you have freedom. Hallelujah. You shall know the truth, the truth shall set you free, Hallelujah. right? And so this is why when you're talking with this point that you're making here is a really good one, because when we talk about this idea of the Talmud and, you know, somebody asked me, well, look, what's your problem with Noahide laws? My problem with Noahide laws are this. If, uh, I, I'm willing to live and let live. OK, if you want to hold a belief that's an ethnicity, that's fine. Go hold it over there. But the minute you come to me and say, I'm telling right. you what you're going to believe and you're going to believe under my strata, under my system, blah, 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 blah. Or I'm going to lock your head off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry. That's not going to happen. That's that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. And, uh, you know, so this is what you see. And this is what you see with Talmudism. And, you know, and of course, people say, well, there's no evangelization from Judaism. Well, what do you think communism was? That was hardcore Talmudism, atheist Talmudism being spread worldwide under the international Kamsamal. And a, an attempt is being made now in the second tier to spread Noahidism, which is another form of the same thing. It's just re repackaged under a different name that is being promoted, proselytized, and sold around the world as this is going to be the key, the key solution to your problem, right? And it will end up in the same place. It will end up in the exact same place. Under communism, there were over 150 million people killed. Yeah. You know, I was having, I had a conversation with Eric Bissell. Gosh, if you could even call it that, but we think we discussed everything you could possibly discuss. But um, at one point he had mentioned Ein Sof and we both paused <laughs> and it was so funny because he said, so, you know, oh, and technically though the Ein Sof and I stood quiet. I said, I'm good. You good? He said, Oh, you 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 do know that this is a term that's used in uh, uh, Kabbalism, and he says, and then so he began to speak even in, along the same manners, specifically speaking of educating me with the information that he was giving me, not trying to indoctrinate me with that information. But right. I said, I can appreciate where you're coming from, Eric. I'm not uh, challenged by that term. But but he said, but yeah, but so many people are because, again, you can't mention, you can't clarify. It's really unfortunate, but he was really trying to clarify a point here and simplify it and, and really to yeah. bring it down from its lofty place. Because I think when we induce fear, into anything, even if it's a topic. Uh, hey, Salvador, I just want to say thank you for that contribution. Wow, five bucks. Thank you so much, brother. That means a lot to me. Uh, but again, Dr. Pigeon, when we induce fear into any topic, any subject, vaccinations, food, water. Right, know, right, right, right. And to the extent that we do that, it. It yeah, to the to the extent that we do that, Jessica, let us all repent, right? I know all of us make, you know, we, you know, yeah. we, we tend to be afraid of something that we pass our fear on, you know. We sure do. And the thing is, is that, you know, I like to, I like the idea of sola scriptura, right? Sola scriptura, you know, find the name in scripture. What does scripture say, right? What does it say? It tells you what the name of Yah is, right? And and so you can have this idea, but you know, even so, you still. This is why our show last week was, I thought, a very good show, the twenty-two mysteries. There are mysteries. There's 22 mysteries in the New Testament. I mean, I went away from that show scratching my head. <laughs> I don't have the answer for that one. I don't have the answer for this one. I, you know, and if you don't have the answer, aren't you curious? Don't you want to know? You know, don't you want to? Absolutely. So we're gonna leave some time here for questions and answers. Before we do, let's bring it back to the topic at hand. We were discussing, or you were actually discussing, uh, the I guess prophetic or the symbolism behind the stones of the ephod, but more than that, how they
relate to not only Yahusha or the Mashiach, but specifically the anti-Mashiach, or in this case, not the Christian or Greek concept of an antichrist, but in this particular case, Molech. And we were defining or the attributes of Molech and giving you something to go search out. Uh, could it possibly be? I mean, again, Dr. Pigeon is not saying that this is written in stone, pun intended, but that this is something that you could consider and perhaps search it out. Perhaps it motivates you to go look further into this. But uh, he had given us the suggestion that perhaps Molech was a female Malachim or an angel or a fallen one, but female, maybe feminine, not, not female. Well, maybe, but I, don't th I think asexual Queen. in heaven, but maybe asexual in heaven, but maybe taking on female form uh, when, when on earth. Well, remember earlier when I had brought you to that word, I think I, I got rid of it. I think it was pheno or something like that, which meant to reveal uh, by teaching or enlightening. But it's interesting that this word for wisdom is Sophia in the Greek. Also, uh, Sophia being the goddess of, of wisdom, right? Uh, but you had mentioned Seraphim as well. Um, I don't know what I did with all my notes. I think I logged out of them, but I think I wrote it down here. So Seraph, uh, this Hebrew word Seraph is also um, connected to the word light uh, in the sense of purity. So a seraph or a seraphim would also be connected to light or purity. But Dr. Pigeon, I want to take you here really quick in Revelations chapter 18, 23. And this is speaking of the final judgment uh, that will visit the nation. And here in this particular verse, it says, and the light, this is that word phos that I'd mentioned earlier, the revelation, right? The light of a candle, it says candle here, but it's actually a, an illumination, some form of illumination. There's something that's internalized, uh, like a lamp of sorts. But the light shall shine no more at all in thee. And the voice, this is where I got my old ministry name, Kohakala, or this in this case would be Chason, but it says, no more at all in thee. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. For thy merchants, your imperos, were the great men of the earth, for by your sorceries were all nations deceived. Now, what's interesting is that we see that Greek word for light there, which is again taking it all the way back to Molech, this enlightened being, or he's not really enlightened. He appears to be Dr. Pippin. He gives an outward appearance of some sort of white shining or pressed oil, you know, this anti-Mashiach, this false one, the one that's not anointed to teach, not anointed to deliver, not anointed to save, not qualified to do these things, but in, through in, sorcery has appeared to be, given the appearance of that. Yeah, one more thing, exactly. one more thing, Dr. Pigeon. This word sorcery, believe it or not, is in fact connected to the word serpent or nakash in Genesis that visits the woman and has a conversation with her regarding her desire to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The word serpent is nakash and nakash at its prime means sorcerer, enlightened one, 
shimmering one. Uh, it means a whisperer of magic spell, necromancy, all these things that have to do with sorceries. I thought that was extremely interesting, Dr. Pigeon. Yeah, the Nakash, yeah. The Nakash. But, but remember that that it was Moshe who put the Nakash on oh, the yes. pole, right? Right, totally and different so, subject though. This is the well, entity that visited with the woman in the garden. The same, but the same word, the same word. He put a Nakash on the pole. But that's a different subject because we, 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 can, we can open up a whole can of worms with that one. The key here is that what you're talking about, when you say press down, you know, one of the words is in fact pressed down, hammered. That's one of the gemstones. Right. Whitened is one of the gemstones, right? White numbered is another one of the gemstones. Named, numbered, named, pressed down, right? A pressed down oil. And then and enlightenment, but his enlightenment is the ministry of the fruit of blasphemy. Mm. His enlightenment is the ministry of the fruit of blasphemy. I, I mean, I think that's what we found in this underlying meaning in Ezekiel, right? Just by looking at some of the other words that are there. Now, when you talk about this, when you talk about this in, you know, when you look at this passage in Revelation, okay, we talk about this passage in Revelation, and it's talking about, and the light of the candle shall shine no more in you at all, right? right. The, enlighten, the enlightenment shall be no more there. That's right. The, the voice of the bridegroom and the bride shall be heard no more at all in you. Well, why would the voice of the bride and the bridegroom not be heard anymore? Because there's no marriage anymore. Why bother with marriage? Who needs marriage? You know, if you if you read in the uh, the Cave of the Treasures, you know, right, which is a uh, you know it's an extra scriptural book, but it, uh, we read from one passage in the Cave of the Treasures when we did our thing on the Pride Week. You know, the kind of decadence that they found when the sons of Seth came down and saw the sons of Cain. The decadence was there wasn't any marriage going on. There was no marriage going on, right? And then it goes on to say, for your merchants, right, were the great men of the earth, but by your sorceries were all nations deceived. Yeah, yeah I mean, now the sorceries, of course, right. I agree with that, that. You're talking about, you know, it's the idea of incantation, right? It's the idea of incantation. And so this, and the necromancy, talking with the dead, incantation. And, well, and then, you know, also, you know, there's, you know, so there's a lot of ways to look at this passage. All well, I can say is, is that when you're talking about when you're talking about this Molech, if we if we are in fact talking about Molech, is there a correlation between Molech and Tyre? Well, there could be. Remember that you know the king of Tyre was who? It was Hiram, right? And Hiram and his builder Hiram Abiff would become the god, if you will, the, the the demigod for the Masons, right? The one who built Solomon's temple, Hiram Abiff. So there is a relation of let's point the finger at Tyre, let's point the finger at Tyre, let's point the finger at Tyre. And it's possible that there's a prophetic meaning there. Okay. King of Tyre, Molech Tsar, Al-Molech Tsar, as compared to Al-Melech Tsar, hmm. Al-Melech Tsar, Al-Malach, uh, Molech Tsar, right? Hmm. King of Tyre or Molech the adversary. Or could it be that they were addressing the principality that was ruling over that particular principality, the principality. Very you know what's possible. interesting is that uh, in Isaiah, Isaiah is talking about the desolation of the land, and he speaks of these wild beasts, right? These demons. Uh, he he gives them, uh, you know, features, and he and he describes them as animals, and so there are several of them there. 
but in one case he mentions this screech owl and what's really interesting is that the, the word screech owl in hebrew is uh, derived from the hebrew word lilith or lilith it's where mm -hmm. we get the word lilith so if you were to google lilith you'll find her she's like half woman half owl she's got claws um and she's carrying the anki i think and so she or some something that looks like an anki and so she's this uh, screech owl. But if you continue to look at the definition of Lilith, Lilith is a, a demon of the night or desolation. She inhabits desolate places. Well, if you go back into Genesis and you see that Yahuwah says that darkness was upon the face of the earth, this word is Hosech, and he called this word Lila. That's why I don't say Lila Tove anymore. So this word Lila is the root <laughs> word, but it makes sense. I mean, it makes sense. Conceptually, it makes sense. Uh, but this word Lila is the root of this word Lilith, which Lila means to twist away from the light, to turn away, to twist. And uh, in you were talking about, you know, we're talking about this verse in Revelations about the prophetic um, matter here, but it comes from Jeremiah 33, 11, again, being reiterated as coming to pass. During this time, this will come to pass as Jeremiah have pro has, has prophesied. It says, the restoration of Yasharel. Check this out. This is what Yahuwah says. In this place, you say is a wasteland full of desolation without man or beast in the cities of Yahuda and in the streets of Yerushalem that are deserted, inhabited by neither man nor beast. There will be heard again the sounds that you see that the opposite happening, the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of the bride and bridegroom, and the voices of those bringing thank offerings into the house of Yahuwah, saying, give thanks to Yahuwah of hosts, uh, for Yahuwah is good. His loving devotion endures forever, for I will restore the land from captivity in its former times, says Yahuwah. This is what Yahuwah of hosts says, in this desolate place, without man or beast, and in all its cities, there will once more be pastures for shepherds to rest their flocks. You know, it's really interesting that whatever the case may be, the way that I see it, Dr. Pigeon, is that this particular principality is a principality of desolation and ruin, that in fact, it darkens the minds of men and brings them to a place of barrenness. It brings them from a stature in Mashiach, because in Mashiach, we are the, the weak, are made strong, the low, the abased are lifted up. So you see that he removes the line of demarcation that segregates us from his esteem. And in him, we are esteemed. But without him, without without the Holy Spirit revealing the magnificent glory of Elohim, we are desolate. We are impoverished. And I think that this is what is happening even on the on, on, on the face of the earth today, Dr. Pigeon, we are reaching uh, a moment in time where there is no more light. There's It's very, very small. The remnant, the light <laughs> has become very dim, small. Yeah, you know, a single candle, the if you will. Darkness that's consuming us, yes. It's desolation. Yeah. Well, we knew that was going to happen. I mean, it's it's prophesied by by Paul, who said, you know, that it won't be the we're not going to see the man of perdition, the son of sin, until the falling away, the apostasy right. happens first. And we're in the middle of that apostasy right now. You know, I mean, it's happening critically all over the world. 
And I think you're going to see a real turn. I mean, I think I think uh, the rainbow flag is going to absolutely crush what's left of Christianity. It's going to crush it. And they have they have succeeded with massive victories lately in the public square and in the and in the public psychology and uh, across the social order. And they are it is a zero sum game for them. I mean, it's it's Christianity or them. And they are, you know, they are extinguishing what little what few, they're going around the world and with a fire extinguisher and putting out what few lights are left, you know, puff, 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 boom, gone, gone. And so when you see that kind of thing, yeah, the apostasy is going to come. There's going to be fewer and fewer lights. And Mashiach says, when I come back, will I find even a single a single person of faith? Will I find anyone, you know? And so for the rest of us that are, that are engaged in what we're doing, you know, I know a lot of people, and for me, of course, the study of scripture is, you know, my full-time job. I mean, I love it. I love uh, reading the word and going through it, deciphering it, pulling it out, seeing what's there, trying to decipher, make sense out of what's happening. And I think uh, there's, I know there's a lot of people that are watching this now that are of the same ilk, that are people, you know, students of students of scripture. And we do it, you know, we do it because we love, yeah. I mean, that's really the main reason. And the Ruach has commissioned us, right? The Ruach has commissioned us, said, you go, you go and do it. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And it's not like it's a burden. The burden is light, right? I mean, I love the work that I'm doing. I don't dislike it. I love the work that I'm doing. And, you know, it, uh, and of course, when, uh, when as we talk about this subject here tonight, yeah, we can talk about the light going out. We can talk about this guy, but I think we see that on one hand, you had this, if you had this, uh, this breastplate, this breastplate had twelve stones. The twelve stones reflect the twelve tribes. But these stones, what I'm to the, the point I'm trying to put across here tonight, is that these stones, you know, instead of people looking at the stones and saying, well, that Edom, that must be a ruby, and that one must be, you know, a diamond, right. and that one must be this, we don't know that. It's far more likely that they were certain kinds of cuts of stone. They may have all been diamonds, but a different colored diamond and cut in a different way. We don't know. We don't know. But what we do know is that the message of the Ophod is telling us something and that there was a, a light that was, I think, an ordained light that was running through that breastplate, giving a symbol and telling so so that the priest could look at it and rightly divide the word and say, well, we have illumination across the following stones. And That's because right. we have this illumination, let's see what that says. And they, they, they put it there in the words and they rightly divide the words. And they say, this is what we've come with. This is our judgment that we've come up with. And so this is the or, the Orem and the, and the Tumim. And so it's a different understanding from what you've been taught. And I think we've seen a different understanding for the King of Tyre and, as compared to what we've been taught. And I think also... We've discussed tonight, and I think it's very important that we've discussed critical thinking when it comes to dealing with issues of Judaism, dealing with issues of, of, of Christianity or issues of orthodoxy or issues of, of Catholicism. You know, you have to have some inside detail and you have to be able to look without fear. And if you can look without fear before you go judging and saying, oh, that's just ridiculous. You know, you have to have some kind of I think you need to have a little bit of a. Uh, a generous heart before running into a panic attack and pulling out the knife and stabbing something to death, right? They stab it with their steely knives, but they just can't kill the beast. <laughs> Dr. <Yeah>. P. <laughs> That's a song, Dr. P. <laughs>
<laughs> All right, hang on just a second. Listen, we have a lot of questions. Uh, let me tell you guys, when you post your questions in advance, unfortunately, I'm not monitoring them because I'm doing this show live. So we do have our, our moderators here that will try to retrieve them, but uh, we have a different format. So if you can please post them now, we will get to a few of them. Uh, they say they have to go back. They posted them earlier and I did see a bunch of questions, really, really good ones. So um, while we're waiting for them to go back and, and retrieve those questions, Dr. P. So I know that we, we're not going to talk about the book of Galatians, but um, oh, here's one. Here we go. Here we go. Because look at that was the father saying no, because we, we will spend too much time on that, I'm sure. OK, yeah. let's go to this one. Let's go to this one. OK. Um, OK, so Linda says something about Mark 14, 51, 52, the guy who drops his linen. Oh, <laughs> I can't believe you brought that up, Linda. I don't believe you brought that up. Yeah, I mean, look. What is she talking about? Explain it to us. I don't know. <laughs> well, this is, look, this is a very difficult passage in the Gospel of Mark. And I'm, I'm telling you, it's a difficult passage. And again, you know, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, do we know? Can I pull it up? What is it? Well, she gave you the citation right oh, okay, there. That's right. She sure did. Let's see. Okay. Pull what that up. Mark 14, 51 through 52. All right, mm -hmm. what are we looking at here? Mark 15. Oh, you're going to be looking at a real difficulty. I'll tell you that right now. 15. Oh, no, Mark 14. Okay. 51 through 52. Let's see. What are we looking at here? And there followed him a certain young man having a linen cloth cast about his naked body. And the young men laid hold on him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Why is this one difficult? Well, you know, yeah, it goes to really, um, well, I'm not going to talk about it too extensively. Okay. I, person I personally believe that this young man that was fled from there, and the reason he's in this passage is because it was John Mark, John Mark. Now, the Gospels, again, when you go back to the creation of the Gospels, you have some very interesting, you know, I'm, again, I've got another blog coming out on this called the, um, it's called the, um, what is it called? It's the language of scripture, the language of scripture. Yeah, the language of scripture. I talk about the history of the New Testament. The history of the New Testament is very, very difficult. You know, you have three fragments, three fragments from the second century, which is Matthew, uh, the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of John and the book of Revelation. They're th those are the only three fragments that appear from the second century. The third century is where you begin to get most of the documents, although there is no Greek fragment for 2 Timothy, probably because 2 Timothy was written in Aramaic and sustained in, Ar in Aramaic, okay? Now, in addition to that, you have this, uh, you have this uh, 1 John, excuse me, 2 John and 3 John do not appear until the 5th century. Okay, so there's some real, you got some real issues that are taking place here in terms of the record. Now, I believe, it's my conviction, that, that the Gospels were conceived in Ivrit. Matthew, Mark, and John, and Luke were conceived in Ivrit. But Luke is obviously after the fact. He was an associate with Paul after the crucifixion. Mark, I believe, was John Mark, who was an associate with Peter and who wrote the Gospel of Mark in Alexandria. He may have crafted that gospel in Greek. He may have crafted it in Greek. And I think this particular passage refers to John Mark. But trust me when I tell you that this passage has more implications in it than you might think. 
And I'm not going to get into them now because I don't have any evidence of any of it. But all I can tell you is that if you look at the gospel according to the Hebrews, which are excerpts that were found in the notes of Eusebius, uh, and they are considered, you know, part of the, uh, once again, the fragmented record, uh, you'll see that there is more reference to this particular young man running around with, with uh, losing his linen, you know. At least, okay. he didn't lose, at least he didn't lose his lunch, right? <laughs> okay, yes, I have. I right. this, I, okay, so. I yeah. see this question. Has anybody checked out Avi Ben-Mordecai and the teaching of Galatians? Yeah, the, Avi Ben-Mordecai, James Trim have both written kind of the same book on Galatians and they talk about this treatment, but you're going to get, you're going to get us into Galatians. I have read both those books. I have disagreement with them and not to pick on either one of those guys, but you know, there is this attempt to try to understand Paul by reconstruing stuff. That's not in the text. At some level, we have to take a look at the text and we have to take a look at the genuineness of the text. I mean, that's, what's got to happen. The assumption of both Avi Ben Mordecai and James Trim is that the text is the text. And I mean, I appreciate their work. I appreciate their work. I'm not so sure I agree with it, but we have to save that for another another show. Discussion. Absolutely. Because yeah. um, Galatians blows my mind. It just, to, my mind is on Galatians today because I went there. Um, I had posted something. The other day, Dr. Pigeon, I had heard um, on the radio, I just got in the car and I, I heard the radio was on a Christian station. Some I don't know who it was, but some pastor, he just made some, you know, just quick comment about how obedience does not lead to salvation, not even if it's perfect obedience. And my mind quickly went to the fact that the core of Christianity is based on the idea that Yeshua, Jesus, um, obeyed unto death and that through his uh, submission or his obedience, we are now able to enter in and and find salvation or be saved. All, but was, all power on heaven and earth has been given unto me. Therefore, Go forth and baptize all nations in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey all that I have commanded. Not teach them disobedience, right? But teach them to obey. Now, it's not a question of they say it's not a question of salvation. We're saved by grace through faith alone. Okay, what are you talking about, grace? Oh, grace is a free license to sin, and faith is saying I believe. No, faith means faithfulness. That means at making your walk adhere to your talk. That's what faithfulness is. Grace is the impetus of Yah to reach us. Okay. All right. Let's keep going. Hallelujah. Good word. Good word. All right. Did Dr. P source Ezekiel from the Dead Sea Scrolls and correct the order of the chapters? And the answer is we have not corrected the order of the chapters. We may at some point, but we have not corrected them. Now, you don't have to source the Dead Sea Scrolls to see it. All you have to do is look at any version of Ezekiel, and he numbers the 13 scrolls. On the fifth day of the sixth year, on the twelfth day of the ninth year, on the blah, 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 you get all of these dates that are very clear. It's very clear inside the book that the book has been taken out of order. I mean, read it yourself. You'll see. It's been taken out of order. It's very easy to ascertain its order. You don't even have to look at the Dead Sea Scrolls to do it. However, we are going to be making a reference to the Dead Sea Scrolls because I want to see exactly how many changes this Hananiah, whatever his name was, made in terms of harmonizing Ezekiel. Because I think there's some, you know, this, I think that personally Ezekiel is prophetic. Absolutely. He's not, he's not trying to compete with Moshe. He's saying this is going to be the way the Torah is going to be practiced and in fact was practiced that way. 
Okay, here we go. Thank you, Sherry. This is a comment for you, yeah. Thank you, thank you, Sherry. I appreciate that so much. You, you just you, thank you. Okay, so can we actually covered. So the next one from Yolanda: Can we compare the listing of the stones in Exodus and Ezekiel and Revelations? Revelations is missing one or two. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can because Revelation is talking about the foundations, right? It's talking about the foundations, not the twelve gates of pearls. Mm. It's talking about the foundation stones, but you can. But again, here you have, you know, every single passage in Revelation is tied to a passage in the Old Testament. Every single verse is tied to a passage in the Old Testament. And so, yes, you can. But the Greeks, again, in their interpretation, instead of putting Odom in there or Adom, they put in ruby, I mean, or a sapphire. I mean, they just flat do it. There's, they, don't, they don't bother to wait around to see if you're talking about a particular cut of stone or uh, the underlying meaning of the, of the word that's there. They just went ahead and guessed what the stone was and put it in. So I remember hearing something like, and I don't know if this is true, but I remembered something crossing somewhere and I don't know if there's any validity to it, but something about Satan having a breastplate and missing a stone or is the, does that sound familiar? That well, sound you know, yeah, he's, he's one stone short of a full breastplate. <laughs> <laughs> There's more guys. <laughs> that's so good. Yes. Okay. So, but have you heard of that? I mean, I don't know. I have not. I mean, that's, it's probably speculation of somebody teaching on that, you know, that kind of thing, but you know, you see stuff in, in, in. Oh, John's so that's brother. what she was getting at. That's why she was asking. So that's what yeah. I had thought she was asking because I had heard this before that he also was uh, in his, his, uh, I think it's actually in Ezekiel. It talks about him being uh, created or embedded with pipes, like you said, right? Right, right. There were pipes, which would have been his lungs, his pipes. You know what's interesting, Dr. Pigeon, and maybe you don't know, maybe you do know, maybe you can lead us to somewhere where you can find out. But it talks about the fact that he had once had, he was, he would usher in the glory of Elohim and that he walked amidst the stones of fire. Right. right. Walked amidst the stones of fire. Yeah. Right. And so he, he, that was his ministry to do this, right? This was his, so he had access, direct access to Yahuwah Elohim, the creator. Mm -hmm. So well, the he Caribbean, must have been like the, real yeah, high up. Yeah. The, the Caribbean do, but he was the anointed, he or she was uh, the anointed Caribbean. Caribbean, the anointed Caribbean. And there's something higher about this particular Ooh. Caribbean. And, you know, I'll tell you, there's something interesting Ooh. too, if you want to compare stones. There yeah. is a discussion in stones the of fire, right? Stones of fire. If you want to, okay. but if you're talking about, you know, precious stones, you take a look at uh, the Quran because mm -hmm. the Quran talks about a white horse that carried Muhammad to heaven. Mm -hmm. And that white horse is covered with stones and it's the same oh. list of stones, right? Same list of stones. And the horse's name, oh. by the way, was Barak. And Barak. Barak, of course, when Mashiach said, I saw Satan fall like fall like lightning from heaven, right? Or if he said, I saw Satan I fall like that. lightning, lightning from high places, right? He saw Barack Obama. Barack. Right? Uh -huh. Barack lightning, Obama, Obama, the high place, right? It's one theory. No, no, I remember hearing something about that too, or looking into it. But Ezekiel 28:14, this might uh, add more to the question here, Ezekiel 28, 14, and again, speaking over 
tear or tire, a lament over this king. And perhaps it's not even a king, like you said, perhaps it's a principality or a ruling agent over this particular region. So it says, you were in Eden, and we know the king of Tyre was not in Eden, but you were in Eden, the garden of Elohim. Every kind of precious stone adorned you. This is what I was talking about. Ruby, topaz, and diamond. Uh, so what I thought diamonds were a modern thing. So diamonds, okay. Beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald. Your mountings and settings were crafted in gold, prepared on the day of your creation. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for I had ordained you. You were on the holy mountain of Elohim. You walked among the fiery stones. From the day you were created, you were blameless in your ways until wickedness was found in you. Ooh <sighs> among mm -hmm. the fiery stones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, so the question is, I mean, there's a bunch of questions there when you talk about the fiery stones, the stones of fire. What are those? I mean, I think the stones of fire, you know, you're looking at the stones when they are lit. Now, but it's also, it could be a lot more, Jessica. I mean, you know, again, when you're talking about Ezekiel, you could be talking a lot more. Now, one point I want to make before we get in, into any more questions. You made a point about Lila. Mm. And, and you said Lila, this actually means twisting away from the light. Yes. Okay. Now let's do a demonstration of that. Okay. Okay. okay so I'm going to put the name of this can here here like this. Mm. Now I'm going to twist it away from the light. You see that? So this is what we call revolving. Oh yeah. Like the sun, like the earth. Like see? The <laughs> so the earth is facing the light and you see it twists away from the light to create night because now the name is back here where Makes it's dark. Sense. Makes sense. I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just teasing. You know, Makes that. sense. Makes sense. Dr. P. However, he calls Hosef. He calls the darkness Lila. And in fact, this word Lila, it's, this is why they say, okay, Lila Tov, because what you're doing when you close your eyes is you are turning away from the light. You're going into the night. And Hosek is darkness, which means only a few things. But of the few things that it means, it also means it's the first concept of death that does not have anything to do with the shedding of blood. Hosek means the dimming of eye, to dim the eye, death, but to be ignorant or to be in the dark. This is what Hosek means. Very interesting. We see this, this concept of dimming the eye used several times to define death or slumber. Matter of fact, Moses, when he was about ready to kick the can, he was standing before the promise and it says that his eye was not dim. He's the only one that where it says his right. eye was not dim and that was right. like, there was vitality, there was vigor still in his bones. And it was, I, I believe the reason why his eyes were not dim, in other words, he was not ignorant, he was not spiritually dead, or he did not twist away from the light, is because right then and there, Yahuwah had to give him a prophetic revelation of the promise. Why? Because he, he says that he opened his eyes and he saw the promise because he had to be able to prophesy to Joshua, he had to be able to prophesy that which his eyes had had received, had received by faith. He had to be able to see that. But 
again, if we think about this word hosech and the fact that Yehuda said, don't eat from that tree because in the day that you do, you will die, die, you will die. And so, yes, it's damut or mut uh, to die. That is the shedding of blood or the concept of this. But the first idea of death, Dr. Pigeon, is to darken the mind, to dim the eye. And the eye was affected, the woman's eyes, and she did see. It's the dimming of the eye, to be ignorant, to wander in darkness, to be hosek, to be lila, to twist away. There's many scriptures that talk about being children of darkness. We're no longer children of Satan, but we're children of the light, or that he was a light in a dark place. Or mm -hmm. There's many concepts of him coming and bringing the light. Or and even Paul says, I pray, beloved, that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened. Again, the eyes. So it makes sense that the, the Laila Tov would be the closing the eyes, dimming the eyes and going to sleep, you know, which is a metaphor for death. Okay, I just wanted to make that point. Like okay. when your when your eyes roll into the back of your head, for instance. Like, oh <laughs> my gosh! <laughs> you know, it looks like we are. Uh, doesn't look like there's any more questions. Unfortunately, I lost them, guys. Fiery. Oh, someone said maybe fiery stones equals brimstone. No, uh, I don't think so. I think yeah. the fiery stones. I think the fire. You know, uh, I didn't want to get into it oh, because fiery but, stones. Maybe okay. No. I don't think so. I th I th well, I mean, it could be, but I don't. Th I think what the fiery stones are talking about here is that you're talking. You know, someday, like when Zen and I get into this discussion about cosmology, I'm going to share with you this idea of the heavens stacked up above the earth, right? And the way the heavens stack up and how they go into a different frequency, and they're, you know, like to Yah of a, 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 a day is like a thousand years, right? And so you have this idea of this broadband frequency that's out when by the time you get to the seventh heaven you're it's a thousand years one day is a thousand years right or a thousand years here on earth is one day to him and so you so that tells you that there's a factor of a thousand out there and when you're talking about the care of walking among the fiery stones you know when you were talking about you know uh, uh watching satan fall from heaven or wow. you know the angels being the stars in heaven they wow. may very well be these angels may very well be what we see as stars in heaven are actually stacked out into the third heaven or the fourth Ooh. heaven or whatever. And we're sitting here looking at it and saying, oh, that's, you know, like these guys, oh, Mars is 33 million miles from here. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? Everybody's give got to take a mile. Give or take a mile, right? Yeah. <laughs> we got the calculation nailed right down, you know? Well, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, but the thing oh, is, we, we really don't know what we, what it's possible that we do know is that, I mean, or at least what we can see is that these could be layer on layer of the heavens above us. And we see a, we see dimly right through a, through a glass dimly. So we see out there and we see some of this stuff, but we don't see all of it. And because the frequency is beyond us, it's, it's yeah. beyond us. It's beyond our ability to see the scope. Yeah. yeah. And as similarly, when we look in, when we look in, we can see in, but you know, the guys, when they get to subatomic particles, they need a microscope to see it, right? They need an electron microscope to get in there. And then the, even cone, the cones in our, 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 the back of our head and the images that are set before us, that the light, that the light has a lot to do. And then, you know, the bending of our eye and the way that. Yeah, the there's a physical aspect to it. There's for just sure. too much to it. Yeah. Right. But when you're talking about the, when you're talking about the subatomic particles, they don't even see them. They see the evidence of them, like their pathways, their tracks, mm -hmm. if you will, but they don't actually see them, right? And so because they probably exist in another heaven, another density, mm -hmm. a density that is of a frequency that's smaller than ours. 
So, you know, you, uh, the easiest way to understand it is like we, we hear 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz. If your ears were perfect, which, no, you know, by the time you get to my age, forget it. Be lucky to hear 16,000. But a dog hears 25,000, 30,000. Right. So you got a dog whistle, you blow it, you don't hear a thing. Dog, it's ripping his head off, right? Because you're right. blowing the dog whistle, right? They used to have a, 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 a speaker out that used to have a teenage repellent. And they'd put a frequency on it, 18,000 hertz, and, and run it. And it would chase the teenagers off. They were the only ones that could hear it. The adults couldn't hear it because mm. their ears were still fresh, right? Same kind of thing here. We, we see a reality at a certain perception of frequency. And there's probably, in my opinion, there's 10 layers above us at different frequencies and seven layers below us at different frequencies. Hmm. So then it okay. couldn't be the, the it couldn't be the fire and brimstone. It could be. It could be, but I'm I don't think that's that, it. It's in another, it's elevated. It's not, it's not something that. It's elevated. He's walking among the, among the fiery stones. But even when you're talking about walking among the stars, you still, I think it's, it's a statement that you're going to get misleading readings from the breastplate because hmm. he's, because as light, he's walking among those fiery stones. He's walking among them. It's interesting because the, the the fire and brimstone concept or that idea that a pastor would preach fire and brimstone, you know, repent or go to hell is this idea of Sheol, right? Which Sheol is completely different from Gehenna. And and, and again, these, these words mean things. And so Gehenna is a real actual place, right? That is where they would take their refuge and they would use this type of stone, which is brimstone, because it can burn perpetually. And so the, if you look, if you take an aerial view or a bird's eye view and you look down down uh, where this lake is, it looks like a lake of fire. I mean, if you look at this uh, this inroad, it looks like a lake of fire because it's got this brimstone and it is on fire in the sense that they take their trash and they burn their refuge in this valley. This would be the valley of uh, Armageddon or, or how would you say? Is it Armageddon? Armageddon. Har Armageddon, thank you. Yes, this valley Armageddon, where they used to uh, sacrifice children to Molech. By the way, they used to sacrifice their children to Molech, and this is also the place of many great battles. And they believe that this will be the place where uh, the the next great finale will that will ensue. But I don't oh, yeah. know if that's true or not. But well, yeah. yeah. Well, the thing is, yeah. I mean, Armageddon again. It's another discussion because it's actually a mountain, not a valley. Har Megiddo. It's mm. a mountain, not a valley, right? But anyway, but that, we'll, we'll talk about that later. But okay, so uh, question here: Will we ever see the remaining eighty percent of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Yeah, and the answer is I don't know. I mean, look, there was an effort when the scrolls first came out uh, that they thought they were going to be able to prove this, that, and the other thing, and it didn't happen. They undertook to do the the large bulk. I mean, the stuff that was easy to read. You know, when you get a big, you know, you get a scroll and it's complete. And you're looking at this piece, and the eye can read all of that. Okay, great. When you get fragment on fragment on fragment on fragment on fragment, well, that's another issue, right? And they are, little by little, they are leaking out, you know, fragments of this, fragments of that, and so, and so forth. There's a couple of things. Some of the scrolls have been lost, and they're lost to collectors because there were a few scrolls that were sold in the marketplace in 1948. And it would be nice to get those recaptured and have those scrolls read because they're probably the ones in the best condition. As for the rest of them, the guys that were doing the work, including Nakemia Gordon and others that were doing the, you know, doing the work, I mean, a lot of them have lost the desire to, con to continue. And where's the funding? You know, is Israel interested in funding, uh, you know, more revelation that, that, the, uh, that the Masoretic text is corrupt? You know, probably not. You know, so I don't know. I mean, I think there is a, a historic obligation. 
But if you really want to get it done, you know, transfer them out of Israel and send them up to the Irish, and then somebody will get it. We'll finally get it transcribed. All right. Was Hasatan created evil or became evil? Yah says he created evil. Yeah. I mean, of course, you know, I mean, that's always the good question, right? I mean, of course, we have our concept of what is evil and what is good, right? And we know, for instance, I'll give you an example. Uh, in the movie Young Frankenstein, you know, Frank, when he tries to light the cigar for Frankenstein, he ends up lighting his thumb, right? And Frankenstein goes running out of the building. And he and uh, he looks at him and he says, oh, no, fire, fire is our friend. You know, fire is good. Fire is our friend. Well, yeah, fire is our friend when you're cooking your food, when you're heating your house, fire is our friend. When you stick your hand in a fireplace, fire is your enemy. You know, when it burns your house to the ground, fire is your enemy, right? And so what you see is, is that Yah created this, you know, very powerful universe. Some things are more powerful than others. And some of that stuff turns evil. Some of that stuff turns evil. But what is evil? Evil is the falling away from Yah. So was there autonomy given or was man non-autonomous? Was man strictly an instinctive being before eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Mm -hmm. That's a question. Was he just strictly an, 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 an automaton? You know, I just do what I what my instincts tell me to do. Therefore, impossible to sin. I cannot sin because like a dog, you have no election. I just do what dogs do, right? And this is what humans do. Is this what the, is this what scripture is telling us? I don't think so because Adam had discernment. He named all the animals and so, so on and so forth before the fall. So you had something that was going on there that was going to create this evil that came into place. Go ahead, Jessica. Well, no, I was just going to say, is this why, do you think this is why Luciferians uh, worship Lucifer as this being who was the one who came in and, and elevated or opened, you know, esoteric right path, you know, opened the mind and gave them access to their free will or free choice? Yeah, well, look, promote? you know, Lucifer, as far as I'm concerned, is a non-entity. Right. Okay. It's a made-up word full of a bunch of people that want to worship a guy who was at one time bishop of Antioch. Mm. You know, I, I you know, I, I mean, look, you know, but I mean, I don't, I don't mean to demean Luciferians, okay, but actually, I do. But you know, but the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, look, a lot of people, you know, people love everything but the truth. Yeah. You know, you yeah. tell me anything you want, but as soon as you tell me the truth, I'm really done talking to you. Let's move on. Have you got something exciting you can talk about? Let's talk about this. Oh, that's exciting. I mean, they love everything except reality. And because they love everything but reality, they can't accept the truth. And so they don't want to hear the truth. They want to hear something else. And so they just invent stuff. And, you know, they invented the name Lucifer. It doesn't appear in the Greek and it doesn't appear in the Hebrew, period. It doesn't appear. It doesn't appear in anywhere in Scripture. Except... No. Except for on the telescope at the Roman, wherever the Pope is. Wherever yeah, is. yeah, in, in Arizona. Yeah. I mean, so Lucifer is just, Lucifer. as far as I'm concerned, is, is nonsense. And when you're talking about Satan, Satan means adversary. It means right. adversary. And, you know, and, and so it does. Yeah. And, you know, so when you're, if you're talking about worshiping evil, now that's a different story. That's idolatry. That's idolatry. And so, you know, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it's, but, you know, as Eric Bissell would say, you know, that that Isaiah says point blank that nothing was outside the scope of the creation of Yah. Nothing. And that means good and evil. Right. Yeah. Interesting. OK, we have two more questions. Um, that's pretty much it for tonight. We've exceeded our time here. This one's from Felton Ben Yehuda. 
Do you think the overcoming believers are the, I think he meant 144,000, is yeah. a collection of people over history or in one particular church? Yeah, I mean, another great question here. Uh, another great question from Felton. You know, I mean, that's a good question. Because when you're talking about that, you know, of course, there is the discussion in Paul where he says, look, the, you know, at the sound of the last trump, the dead will rise first. The dead will rise first. And, you know, but when you're talking about the 144,000, there are some people who believe that that's two separate groups of 144,000. you got the one group and then you have the other group. Or the 12 tribes, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the 12 tribes. Yeah, so you have you have 12,000 from each tribe. Yeah. and Or then you have the 144,000. Right. So, I mean, I'll tell you where the 144,000 are concerned. You know, it says that they're, they're virgins, right? And I don't think that's a, I don't think that that is a spiritual virginity. They're talking about physical virginity. They're talking about physical virginity. Now, it may be that they are a collection of believers over, over the history in the church. I mean, I've known people who have had children and their children were just like, you know, they were just tremendous children. I mean, you know, it's like if, if you, if you drew a picture of the perfect child, then you'd find their picture in the dictionary, you know? And yet these children have died at early ages, 13, 14, 16. And, you know, the tragedy is just unbelievable. But it's possible that such a child was pulled away by Yah because they were without sin. They were virgins. They were without sin. And he pulled them away that they might be the 144,000. Do I have the answer for that? No, I don't. I think that when it comes to the 144,000, you have some specifics that are laid out in Revelation as to who they are as to who they are and what their conditions are. Right. And so it could be it could be a people over the over over history. It could be. Or it could be that that he raises up witnesses in the last three and a half years that are being raised up throughout the 12 tribes all over the earth. And that they come together, the whole group of witnesses all over the world that all of a sudden come together and boom, they're the they're the they're the 144,000. That's possible too, right? Very interesting. I gotta go look at that. Again. All right. Final question is from Angelo. And Angelo, thank you. Thank you very much for all your emails and uh, your support. It says, are the three nails pierced in Mashiach in the name Yahusha? Yes. The answer is yes. I, I agree with that. And I appreciate that question, Angelo. It's a difficult question, but you know, you have this name, you know, you have Yahusha saying, I come in the name of my father and you do not know me. Okay. Now we talked about this tonight. We saw in this passage that one of the words in the Ezekiel passage was Sha, Shakina, right? Mm. Shakina. From Mishkan. Yeah. And it, well, it was cry out a lamentation over mm. Molech, the adversary. Cried out a lamentation, mm. right? Shakina. Now here we see Sha over this name Yahweh. You can see Yahweh oh. right there in the name. You see Yahweh. But there's a Shah. What's the Shah? The Shah is the mm. Shin, is the Shin. Now, if you recall the Shin, right, is this, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, if you, look at, if you look at the construct of the Shin, it is, you could construe it as three bobs, three bobs, boom, boom, boom. If you did construe it as three bobs, that would have, uh, well, I'm not going to talk about the Gematria. I'm just going to leave that subject out. But what you see is, that the name Yahweh is maimed by the three nails that constitute the shin. You see? 
He's maimed by the three nails that constitute the shin. Okay, there you go. Yeah, you see? Now, you see, if you look at that, you see that you have three spikes coming out of the base, right? Right? Three yeah. spikes coming yeah. come out of the base. Now, so if, you know, in some guys that look at Hebrew, they say, okay, well, look, the spikes constitute vav, 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 tied together in the base. Now, vav, of course, has a gematria of six, so the shin would have six, six, six. So six, six, six would be this mark of three nails that are then maiming the name Yahuwah. They're maiming the name Yahweh. So what you see in the name Yahusha is you're seeing the name Yahweh marked with three nails. Marked with three nails. Interesting. Wow. Very interesting. Okay. And I think that is pretty much uh, it. There are a lot more questions, but I don't know if we have time to get through them all. Talking about the virgins and the creation. Creation from the very sound of Yahuwah speaking. Right. Um, yeah. Okay. But what is but what is the frequency of Yahweh's voice? What is that frequency? It's a frequency that goes from you know all the way to zero to absolute zero to absolute everything. Decibels. <laughs> yeah, we we can't hear, see, we can't understand it. It's a frequency that comprehends all of this and constructed a universe, constructed a firmament, constructed a rakia, constructed an expanse that is really the light shining through the darkness in complex fractal equations built upon both phi and pi and other mathematical formulas that are these massive constructs, these massive fractals that have been built. We do not understand even the beginning of the equation. We see it as matter. We see it as matter, but it really is light shining through the darkness. That's but right. But the darkness does not comprehend it. And all of that light, by the way, is Mashiach, all of it. Wow. That's absolutely right. Um, you know what's interesting? Just let me read this real quick. I wrote this when I back when I was taking anatomy. Oh no, I think this was a psychology. I had posted it. You could find it on my um, on my thread. It says the following image is a depiction of the circadian rhythm process brain activity, and then I just posted some information that I had discovered about this rhythm. Brain activity and other physiological processes are regulated into daily patterns known as circadian rhythms. Sleep-wake cycles operate according to this rhythm, as do body temperatures and hormone levels. Circadian rhythms are influenced by the cycles of light and dark. Even when removed from light cues, however, we and non-human animals as well continue to show these rhythms. In the illustration that I posted here, we see information about light detected by the eyes is sent to a small region on the hypothalamus called suprachiasmatic uh, nucleus. This region then sends signals to a tiny structure called the pineal gland. The pineal gland influences the release of suppression of melatonin, a hormone that travels through the bloodstream and affects various receptors in the body, including some receptors in the brain. Bright light suppresses the production of melatonin, whereas darkness triggers its release. In this case, the light signals, which is 400 to 500 nanometers of light at night, are ind uh, indicative of sunlight or bright light, and therefore the rhythm is disrupted. The SCN sends information to the PVN located in the hypothalamus to inhibit certain functions and ultimately regulate, regulate the secretion of melatonin in this case to decrease and therefore prevent sleep from outcoming. The reason why I bring that up, phew, uh, the reason why I brought that up, I'll just share it real quick. The reason why I brought that up, Dr. P, is because I wrote this a while back. 
this is, um, I'd taken this class. My professor was like a neuro something, something. And um, so I had posted this because I thought it was pretty cool uh, that we cannot determine whether it's day or night. What we do is we take in these signals, like I said here, 400, 500 nanometers of light, and we interpret that. And how we interpret that will then determine whether or not we release this particular hormone that then causes us to get a little fuzzy and want to go to sleep, make us feel good. What's interesting is uh, in our homes, we have something called blue light. If you have anything, any, any technology in your house that emits this type of blue light, I encourage you to go and cover it, cover it with some black tape, electrical tape. Uh, green and red um, are identified by the brain as uh, a lower frequency, so it's not uh, as much of a threat, but blue is likened to the sunlight. Isn't that interesting? Blue light is akin to the sun. It's, it's a faster frequency. So you stay awake longer. And this is why our cell phones, right, that blue light uh, can keep you awake. This is why we're told not to, to be on our cell phones or our computers when we go to sleep. But again, we were talking about, you had mentioned something about the frequency of light, the frequency of uh, interpreting or the ability to interpret that frequency, but just even more so how it's related to sleep cycles. Isn't that cool? Yeah, 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 yeah. The whole life. cycle of life, right? And of course, yes. this, this is the beauty of life is that there is a rhythm. There is a rhythm. There is this micro rhythm, Absolutely. which is which is the day by day. And then there is the weekly rhythm, which is the Shabbat. Then there is the yearly rhythm, which is the sabbatical year. Sabbatical. Then there is, the, and, and the, of course, the rhythm of the years, which is the agricultural seasons given to us in the feast days to allow us to adjust our lives to roll, 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 roll. And so all of these things are beautifully and wonderfully given in Scripture. And that's why when people say, well, you're, you're trying to put us under legalism by telling us the Sabbath or telling us uh, the feast days. No, I'm trying to give you a, a natural rhythm of life, right? I'm not trying to give it to you. I'm just trying to show you what this rhythm is in scripture. And it's a beautiful natural rhythm. Somebody asked, what's his voice like? What is this rhythm? I believe that it's likened to this light, that his voice is that light that awakens or quickens the soul. It's the light that brings vitality and brings balance or homeostasis to all of your systems. You have 12 systems in check. You have 12 bodily systems, you know, the, uh, uh, the cardiac system, the, the lymphatic the system, system, the nervous right. system. You have a bunch of systems, you have 12. And so I believe that his word, his voice, this is why Yehosha says, my sheep will hear my voice. And he was a light in a dark place because I believe that his voice is filled with the frequency of light, a light that is unlike the sun here. It's unlike the photons right. that the, sun's em that the right. sun emits, right? Well, it's see, when, when you talk about light, I mean, look, if I were to tell you, look, this is sound. The enemies right? was the voice of darkness that puts you to sleep. That's what I was trying to say. It's a fake light. It's a blue light, Dr. P. But anyways, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, okay. That's all right. But when you talk about, like when we talk, and I'm talking to you now, I'm speaking to you at, at roughly 700 hertz, okay. right? And it's you probably speak, true. you probably speak back to me at around 820, something in that range. Because I'm Hispanic? No, no, it's because your voice is feminine. And so you speak at a little bit higher register. It doesn't have to, kidding. Doesn't have to do with being Hispanic. We speak so fast. We speak so fast. But anyhow. <laughs> yeah. But when you talk about light, light is the same is is matter. It, you know, it's matter at a frequency, right? You're talking about nanohertz instead of megahertz. 
yeah. or kilohertz. You're talking about nanohertz. And so when you when you, so you say we understand the frequency of Yah's voice. No, you don't. You don't understand the frequency no, of his voice, and you don't understand the matter in which it travels, right? And so this is why when we say you know let there be light, right? Yahi or they yahi or right? Yes. Okay, well what's what's or? We say we know it's light. Well, we don't know that for sure. What we do know is that the Aleph has moved to present whatever it was. And so this is why the you know this concept of cosmology based upon what's given to us in Genesis is a great study. It's a great study, you know. Beautiful. Good stuff, Dr. P. We can go all night, uh, but we have actually gone over as usual. But you know what reminds me of Dr. Pigeon? It reminds me of that uh, instance where Yahusha was, uh, I don't know if Yahusha was, but they were in a house, they were preaching the gospel, and they had been there all night long, and there was a gentleman that was sitting in the windowsill. and. Paul. Yeah, Paul. Yeah, yeah, and Paul was pre, and he fell out of the windowsill, and uh, yeah, didn't even die. But because they, they were there all night, again, when you hear the good news, you get excited and you want to continue to stay in that rhythm. Uh, but we've run out of time. I need to go rest. Doctor Pete needs to recover. We just want to thank you all again for your contribution, your support, your prayers. Thank you for joining us every Thursday. Please continue to check out Dr. Pigeon's stuff. He's got new stuff in the works. You can click the contact link in the description box uh, beneath. Uh, click it right down there. If you haven't already subscribed, please consider doing so. You can reach me through that contact information as well. And Dr. Pigeon's also on Facebook. He's very good about responding when he has the time. You can email him. Uh, you can message him through Facebook. Dr. Pigeon, as always, it has been an absolute pleasure. I truly appreciate you. And thank you for participating with Crossing Over. I'm so glad to be here, Jessica. And I just, you know, let's bless Jessica's ministry, everybody. Come on, everybody get on board. Bless Jessica's ministry. All right. And thank and you know, you know, hit the bell, subscribe, all that kind of stuff. Come and visit me at Sefford.net. And thank you again, Jessica. And I was going to say Lila Tove. But no. I'll, but I want to instead I'll say, that's with Daniel is Pacona Noche, a little Paruski. Yes. Thank you, you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Gracias por todo. <laughs> Buenas noches. Good night, everybody. We appreciate you. Good night. Shalom, Dr. P. Shalom.